You know, I kind of dreaded getting to the 60s, episode 60, naming naming rights to 60, 61. 60. Uh, We're really into the offensive linemen, aren't we? It's bad. Bad sports numbers. It's, yeah, it's really just 60s, linemen. Yeah. There's not a lot of NBA players that wore 60s. Baseball. Baseball players really, for the most part, don't wear the high numbers. And football players were kind of in the offensive linemen. But I might have something special up my sleeve. You never know because it's episode 60. Well, you had right? something special on 59, but that's going to be tough I did. to beat. Um, we'll see how oh. you feel about that at the end. All right. Th- there's not as much of a correlation, but I've got a nice a nice gesture for episode 60. Anyway, it's episode 60. Blair Bush 60. in high school. Blair no, we're Bush. Not, we're done with Blair oh. Bush. We are <laughs> done. Guy. We are done with Blair Bush. <laughs> okay. All right. You know what I'm supposed to say? Sorry, go ahead. Apple Podcasts, <laughs> yes. Spotify, MitchUnfiltered.com, Google Podcasts. It's available everywhere. We want you to subscribe. We want you to listen. We want you to rate us on Apple. On Apple, you can go and give us a little five-star rating and, yeah. and and tell what you like or not like about the about the show. We want you to do all of that, okay? And uh, I'm still getting emails and texts and tweets from people that are saying, "I didn't even know you were back. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. This is a year. This is we're now almost a year old, right? And people are still coming aboard saying, "Hey, I did a Google search to see where you landed." And I found out you had a podcast. I just listened to episode one. Oh, wow. It brought me to tears. And, and we're still hearing from people that had no idea that the podcast was back. I got a text from a friend yesterday asking yeah. if my daughter made the team. So he's a little behind, too. So. Well, come on. <laughs> I mean, this guy was on episode one, you said. At least this, my friend's a couple podcasts old. So. A couple? Yeah, well, maybe come on. Yeah, three or four. But yeah, it, that's... I could tell he really had a desire to yeah. know. It took him this long. <laughs> that's right. He's a friend, and it took him this long <laughs> to ask. And I guess we can start off since Thursday night was Seahawks football, and we're kind of removed. Episode 60. For the people that are patrons, they got a big episode, 59P. Yeah. A big dose, a, a big dose of Seahawks Rams reaction because it came out on Friday morning after the Thursday night game. We'll talk about it a little bit on episode sixty for the for the for the cheapies out there for the for the cheap state. Is that what we're calling them? I don't know. Uh, I, I do I do want to I do want to alert you that I, there was a first for me, and since the last time I saw you, okay, a first, a very you know how you you remember things that happened for the first time yeah. that you know are going. But there's I su- less and less of those in our age, isn't there? I mean, I you su- sort of settle in. Well, yeah. I suppose <laughs> I suppose what happened was the inevitable. I took my son to hit baseballs. He's a baseball player. It's yeah. off-season. He's working on his swing. So we went to the batting cage. Went up to a batting cage that's nearby okay. that we go to all the time, especially during the season. You put the coins in or no, you have to like no, rent No, 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 no. You rent. In, gotcha. in fact, he doesn't do a lot of work. With a machine, he does more work with me. I throw to him or off the tee and yeah. underhand and that kind of. So we, so we, so we reserved a a, a batting thing. Mm-hmm. What do you want to call a it? Cage. Batting cage, yeah. a cage, you know, a live cage. And on my way out, I was paying. This is why you don't put the quarters in. I was paying, and the man at the front desk took my money and was giving me change for my money. And he turned to me before we walked out, and he said, "Is your first name Mitch by chance?" Oh boy. And I said, uh, yes, yes, it is. Just know for those people out there, it could go one of two ways. There's really no in between, is there? <laughs> he either is a huge fan or you're getting punched in the face. It could well, go normally one of two the ways. ones that want to punch you in the face, they don't say it. They just <laughs> oh, they, they just punch you. No, they don't. They don't punch you. You this grumble. He said, uh, is your na- is your first name Mitch by chance? I said, yes, yes, it is. He said, awesome. And he put his hand out to shake my hand. He said. My grandma is such a huge fan of yours. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that right? 
wait till I tell oh my, my grandma God. that I met Mitch. She's a patron. Oh my she God. listens to the podcast. Yeah. And you know what's funny is I, if you ask me when it happened, I don't think I could tell you. But I remember distinctly when I started getting for the first time my dad is a big fan or mm. you know, yeah that's years and years and years ago i have never until this oh, week never once and i'm sure you know look look i came in 1995 so that's how many years ago that's uh 25 years ago yeah. i came so somebody who was 35 or 40 listening when i came to town is 65 now <laughs> so right. it, it makes some sense yeah but I don't know that I was really ready for this because I'm, as you know, one of my big problems, I've got many that I talk about all the time on Tuesdays mm -hmm. uh, with the doc is growing older. I'm having, you know, I'm trying to understand and get my arms around growing older. So when somebody says to you, oh, awesome, my grandma is such a huge fan. Yeah. Yeah, that was hard. That, that hurts a little bit. <laughs> that stings. The one that used to get me was we used to I used to listen to your show all the time when I was in middle school or oh, grade yeah. well, school. Oh that yeah, that used to get me, but that that's this is a new level. Oh my for god, you. Yeah. I, I've Grandma. gotten I've gotten ones. My dad was taking me to preschool when we were listening, <laughs> yeah, right. and now I have three kids, and yeah. I have and I just graduated from whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right now I have some like uh, hairspray color in my hair to get rid of the grays as we speak because I I can't look at the grays anymore. Really? I like spray it with this awful, it's it's like one step up from spray paint. Really? It's, I'm sure I'm doing something yeah. wrong to my hair. Take a look. I know. I, I, this is where you're headed, I'm pretty boy. close. I'm pretty close. This is where but you're being headed. being in eSports, I'm so, around like 25-year-olds. I can't take I it. I think that we, I want you to say hello to Grandma Maggie Blair. You figured out who it was? Well, he said, I don't know if he told me her name. Maybe he did, but I tweeted out the story, and within an hour, I got a tweet back, I'm the grandma. Oh, gotcha. So I tweeted out this story of being told that my grandma is a big fan, and then the grandma said, I'm the grandma, and it was Maggie Blair. I think I think her name was Maggie Blair, so say hello to Grandma Maggie Blair. Hello, Grandma Maggie Blair. But yeah. see, we, we picture grandma like like the grandma in Tweety Bird and Sylvester rocking in the chair knitting. <laughs> she could be like 55 and be a grandma. No, I've 60. decided, I, and I tweeted this, I've decided she's the youngest grandma on record in the United States of America. <laughs> okay, good. We're <laughs> just going to go with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Maggie, if you're listening, remember, you're like 39. That's all you are. You're 39 years old. Yep. That'll okay. help you sleep tonight. Uh -huh. Yeah, so that's that's where I am. I'm I'm a little. Uh, Grandma's a big fan. I imagine like rock stars going through that, like like Neil Diamond. At least she's a like, patron. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. At least she's true. paying for the 59 P's and the 58 P's yeah. and so forth. Yeah, that doesn't make it any better. For money, it'll you know it'll help take this thing <laughs> off. Anything for money. Call me. Say whatever you want to me. <laughs> but here's the thing. My grandma's a gr such a big fan. He had to recognize me. So he 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 was like. He was like say he was trying to say that I'm not a fan, but my grandma's. Well, how did he know who I? How did he know to ask me if my name was? Maybe he saw my last name. I don't know. Maybe he heard your know. voice. Do you ever get recognized by your voice? Because that's pretty rare for me. Uh, not really. Yeah. Not, because a lot of people say that when they talk to me, out and about, mm -hmm. that I don't sound the way I sounded on whatever the mics and the compression and yeah. whatever the whatever the radio thing. Ha I used to do a radio show, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. So. that was probably really that's probably where the grandma first I need you here. to cheer me up today because grandma and you at you know you used to ask me or you did during the interview session when uh -huh. you were interviewing me yeah. would you ever go back to radio and I keep telling you why would anybody why would anybody want this my demographic my demographic has changed <laughs> Mitch Levy on the oldie station 
<laughs> Coming up next, the ink spots with <laughs> God. I don't, but, that, uh, but that's not answering the question. That's kind of a cop out. Nobody wants me. That's that's not the question. Whether you think anyone wants you, would you go back to more? You have an audience. If morning warm one hundred six point nine offered me a sweet gig, you were probably listening to that on the uh, way to work, weren't you? Every morning. Oh, I, I've been listening to that since I came to town. Is that right? You still love it. Oh, I, I listened when I was 27. I was listening yeah. to 106.9. Well, in fact, I can honestly say that while I was in the heat of working at KJR Radio, I listened to 106.9 more than I ever listened to KJR. I don't know whether you felt the same way about Cube, although it's a little bit different because that was music and you guys were different in the mornings and yeah. whatever. But for me, when you you prepare for a sports radio show. And then you go do a radio show for four hours from 6 to 10. You can't listen. And then you get in your car oh. at, let's say, 11 or 12 to drive away. Yep. The last thing you want to do is pop on, as great as all these guys were, yep. somebody talking about exactly what you were talking about for four hours. I mean, you're kind of done. You're kind of fried with that topic. For sure. So it was, you know, REO Speedwagon on 106.9. Yeah, people used to always tell me how great Loveline was with Adam uh, Carolla Carolla, and yeah. Dr. Drew. I'm yeah. sure, and I'm sure it was a great show, but yeah. I just I couldn't do any more talk radio after four hours. No talk radio. Not well, just... Well, music wasn't a problem. Yeah. I could listen to music, so but no just, talk radio. Yeah, for some reason, I just couldn't do it after being on for four hours yeah. every day. So yeah. yeah, I missed a lot of good radio probably too. Yeah. Episode 60 is going to feature Rick Neuheisel. He's going to talk about oh, the, the Huskies disaster. Well, he had them go into the college football playoff. I hope we, uh, we don't forget we're, that. We're going we're gonna to start with that. <laughs> okay. Okay. God. I'm going to ask him if he still oh. is staying by his pick for the Huskies <laughs> in the final four. Well, Mitch, I tell you, they can really turn it around here. Oh my God. Yeah. Brutal. What happened on Saturday night in Palo Alto, California? What I don't, ha- I I don't mean, have an answer. What, what is what? When what words should we use to describe that? Brady Anderson, the ESPN Seahawks insider, is with us each and every week. Uh, all of these, by the way, football segments brought to you by Fireside Home Solutions. We're still enjoying, aren't we? The afterglow of the what was it, thirty to twenty nine? Yep. Final on Thursday night, uh, Seahawks over the Rams. How do you feel about? Athletes, college athletes being paid. How do you, where, where are you on that? Endorse money. What about the, you know, their likeness is used in video games and they don't see a cent, they don't see anything. Where, where are you on that debate? Because it's really heating up now in the last 10 days, especially in California. Right. And we've got this guy, Dan Murphy, who's been covering it for ESPN. He's an ESPN writer. The California pay, Fair Pay to Play Act from this past week. Are you, do you have a stance? Do you have an official stance on that? Yeah, I lean more towards paying them than I do not paying them. I think they should get more but than... But you're not strong. Well, I mean, it, it, paying them is kind of vague. Tell me how much. Tell me who gets it. Tell okay, me what sports me, get Let me it. ask it to you a different way. Okay. Should an athlete at the University of Washington, should a Washington football player be able to go over to whatever the bookstore? There are no bookstores anymore. But let's no, assume yeah, but you there's no bookstores. No more, no, but, <laughs> right, go, to a, go to a bookstore mm-hmm. and do signings and be paid to sign his autograph on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. That's a tough one. I'm I'm more towards giving them a set amount before the season a stipend, starts. like yes. a stipend. Now, are you going to pay all college athletes? Or are you just paying football and basketball and the the premier the premier money making sports? I, what are you doing? That's the tough part. But we'd have to look at it as a business. Okay, which program brings in the most? Is it the golf team? Right. Let me look at that really quick. Right. Is it the baseball team? Right. How does the football team do? 
So I'd have to look at it as a business. If there's a huge surplus for the football team, let's start with them okay. and we'll work on other programs. So the state of California over the last seven days passed what they call, what I just called, I, I messed it up, the Fair Pay to Play Act. And what it means is starting in 2023, according to the state of California, California schools cannot penalize an athlete, a student athlete, if he goes and makes money off on the side for signing or endorsing or doing something else. A, a, a school is not allowed to take his amateur status away if he does that, starting in 2023. Now, this is something, this is just the beginning of different states trying to you know, pass different rules, the, the national legislation, federal legislation, the NCAA, it's all coming to a head right now. And Dan Murphy, the ESPN writer, is going to explain what's what's bubbling right now and where we're headed in terms of athletes being paid. I, I am, if you want my opinion, and I know we haven't even started episode 60 yet. We've got to start episode <laughs> 60 right. here. But I am a big believer that with the money that these schools and the NCAA are making from March Madness and college football playoffs and bowl games, I mean, this has become a billion-dollar industry. Right. And for everybody to be making money, coaches, athletic directors, schools, networks, advertise, everybody's making money except for Jalen Hurts, who's going to win the Heisman at Oklahoma. <laughs> That's right. He gets no money. Chris Weber tells the story about walking around Michigan, seeing his jersey in the bookstore, and didn't right. have money to buy right. it. He, you know, he couldn't, couldn't buy his own jersey. <laughs> couldn't buy his own jersey. Couldn't buy his own jersey. That's why he left. So I am, I, I mean, I don't know how you can see and hear that and not be on my side of it. But here's the problem. The slippery slope is, does it get out of hand to yeah. where certain universities have been? I mean, what, what stops, if we go down the route that California is, what stops Phil Knight in Oregon from saying to a star recruit from like Dallas, Texas, come to play for Oregon, you'll do some stuff at Nike's headquarters and I'll pay you $10 million to do 30 <laughs> minutes of work. Right. What's, I mean, I'm obviously I'm exaggerating, saying, but, yeah, yeah. but at, that, at what point do then four or five schools that have huge donors that are willing to pay out of whack money for little small things – they get all the recruit. Everybody goes there, and then only four or five teams are playing for the national championship. Now, the counter to that is, and I, I know we haven't started the show, is aren't only four or five teams playing for the national championship every year anyway? Right now, without that, without the pay for place, right, aren't we at Clemson and Alabama? Every single, it's the same schools over right. and over so again. The, the, so maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe it's not really different than what it is now. The system's already creating that. You're saying. The, well, it's, it's just system, for different reasons. There's just different reasons, yeah. but it's still already do, it's doing It's only four it. or five teams yeah, that essentially are playing every year for them. I don't know. But uh, we'll it's talk to Dan Murphy. And then the very uh, controversial subject matter that I floated on Twitter. And by the way, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Mitch underscore Seattle and you're Scott Soden, That's right? That's right. Okay. I floated this on Twitter. This I didn't realize it was going to be so controversial. I've made it very clear that on these shows – now that I'm doing a podcast and you have the ability to skip around, fast forward, 30 seconds, whatever you want to do, mm -hmm. listen to what you want, don't listen. I, I've made it clear, and I've done a lot of it, that I'm going to wander off into other non-sports stuff that I'm interested in, that I find interest. Yeah. And if people are interested in hearing me talk about those things, they can listen. And if they're not – so I didn't think this was going to be a big deal when I said on Twitter, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a dive into the Amber Geiger murder trial story in Dallas. Oh, my God. 
It is weird how people. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like, I, I can't believe you, you, the audacity. Not only am I not listening to that segment, yeah. I won't listen to any other parts of that episode. I'm not listening to, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not Just, listening to episode 60 because I have the audacity to to dive into a subject that I think is a national story. I mean, it's a, it, to me, it's captivating. It's captivating. It is me. intriguing. Yeah. Yes. Not to mention that since I've done the interview with the guy that you're going to hear on episode 60, right. the main wit- one of the main witnesses got murdered. Yeah, saw that. I-, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I thought maybe it was something yeah. like, like something that happened that night, or I don't know. I was kind of confused. Like, that just happened? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, episode 60, final se- second to final segment, a guy named Lavendrick Smith, which is interesting because I told you this, we... we- we look for a guy from the Dallas Morning News that like sat in on every day of the trial and can teach us and so forth. And we get this guy, and it turns out I'm looking at the area code that I'm supposed to call to interview him, and it's four two five. That's crazy. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second. I didn't want a guy from Bellevue to talk to me about that. No, he went to the University of Washington, grew up here, still has a four two five, and he writes for the Dallas Morning News. And he lives in and Dallas, I, obviously. And he lives in Dallas. And I called him and I did the interview, and the first thing he said was, "Go dogs." Really? That's the first thing he said. Well, good. Well, he probably said that before he saw the last Well, game, he said right? it before Saturday yeah, night. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> no one's saying so that. So, Lavendrick Smith will also be a guest. Four guests on episode 60. I can't remind you enough that there is no Mitch Unfiltered without the terrific cooperation of our sponsors. Episode 60 is presented by Zeke's Pizza with 17 locations, the newest of which in Woodenville. Where are we going to go next to watch a game together? Which Zeke's Pizza? Maybe Kirkland for a Seahawks game. Upcoming Seahawks game, Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Daniels Broiler, excited to announce that we will be doing a special Seahawks viewing party at the new downtown location on November the 11th. Drinks included, heavy hors d'oeuvres included, lots of loud cheering as the Seahawks take on the San Francisco 49ers on Monday Night Football in Santa Clara. Clara. Don't forget, November the 11th, I'm going to be opening it up for reservation soon. Daniels, Mitch Unfiltered, and the Seahawks. There's no place like Daniels for special occasions. The Kirkland office at Guild Mortgage. Jordan Flowers, Guild Mortgage Group, still saving you money. Waiting for your phone call can save you every month with three of the top 1% brokers in the Kirkland office alone. Give Jordan Flowers and Guild Mortgage of Kirkland a call at 425-250-3150. And of course, our friends at Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest, always innovating. Evergreen Golf Call and their new Evervestment program, which allows normal people like you and me to get the same expertise that Evergreen offers their high-wealth investors, evervestment.com. This is episode 60. The Seahawks are 4-1 and one after a thrilling win over the Rams, and it begins right now. Unfiltered. While Ken Griffey Jr. didn't like Safeco Field and pushed his way back to his hometown of Cincinnati, Felix Hernandez, all he wanted to do was pitch for the Mariners. While Alex Rodriguez was chasing $252 million in Texas, which I would have done also, all Felix Hernandez wanted to do was play and pitch for the Seattle Mariners. And here we live in a day and age where players on losing teams in all of sports, good players on losing teams all forced their way out some way or another, not number 34. Unfiltered. If the good Lord told you not only is Carson going to fumble once every game the rest of the year, break the all-time record, no other running back is going to fumble at all the rest of the year. I'll even give you that. 
He is three times better than anybody else you have on the team. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode number 60, Hot Shot Scott. We've made it all the way to 60. Actually, with the P episodes, I think we're pretty close to 100 now. Yeah, we should have been keeping track of that. I, mean, I, I wasn't here and, for most we, we, of them. No, but. we can go back and look. hundredth That would have been special. We should have kept track. A hundredth show? <laughs> yeah. A special, ask people back. That's like right. Like a reunion yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. That would have been a good have do it Jay, live somewhere. Have, have Jay Ham decline. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That would have been special. <laughs> oh, hundredth show. I'm totally uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'll, I'll do it during basketball season. <laughs> right. uh, episode Max Unger. Oh, all right. Did you like Max Unger? Sure. I always liked Max. He's an Oregon Duck, though. Right? He I, is, but he was a really good player. And a nice guy. I didn't know him. Oh, you didn't? Mm-mm. I knew him a little bit. Seemed not, well, Really, really nice. I think he's still playing for the Saints or somebody. Yeah, I think he is. Yeah. Episode Burn Brostek. Oh, yeah, Burn Brostek. Sure, offensive lineman for the Huskies. There you go. That's right. There yeah, you go in the late he was 80s. Good. Yeah, and yeah. he was a first. I think a first round draft choice. I think he wore number sixty. So okay. who says there's not a lot of good sixties? Even though we're not going with any of these people. Boy, a couple of big guys. I'm making fun of their number. Two great NFL legends wore sixty. Otto Graham wore sixty, but he also wore fourteen in the 1944 draft. Ten years with the Browns, three championships, five time Pro Bowler, and probably better than Unger, better than Brostek, even probably better than Graham, the greatest all time athlete to wear 60 was probably Chuck Bednarik, who you might know or not know. I don't know who that know. is. Chuck Bednarik was a fa- name. famous Eagles linebacker in the 40s. <laughs> he was a 10-time All-Pro, an eight-time Pro Bowler, an NFL champion, one of the best linebackers in all-time NFL history. So you knew Chuck that Bednarik. name? You knew who he was before this? Or? Yeah, it's like me saying Ray Nitschke. You know who Ray Nitschke yeah, is. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, okay, it'd be right. like me saying, you know who Otto Graham was? No wonder you know, grandmas you know, love you. Huh? No wonder grandmas <laughs> love you. You know all the players from the 40s. <laughs> yeah, Grandma Maggie Blair's going to say, I'm not that young. I used to date Chuck Bednarik. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, he was a hell of a guy. <laughs> Anyway, those are some of the the ones that went, and I'm I'm going off. To, I got something special. Okay, uh, I'm I'm just telling you right now, none of those are going to be named after the episode. And the truth is, that the person I'm going to name the episode after, the family that I'm going to name the episode after, mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the number sixty. Nothing to do with the number. I'm just going off the board. I'm going to hope that no members of the Benaric family yeah. are listening and pissed. Yeah, but I think even if like the great-grandson of Chuck Bednarik happened to live in Linwood or happened to live somewhere where the, he listens to Mitch Unfiltered. When he hears my explanation of who I'm naming the show for and why, even the great-grandson of Chuck Bednarik would say, my great-granddaddy would have wanted you to do what you did. All right, good. Okay. And Burn Brostek, if he's still around, could probably still kick my butt. So <laughs> I'm going to steer clear of me, Burn. You don't meet a lot of Burns, by the uh, way, do you? It was last, last guy you heard named. Well, he's probably Bernie. He was probably Bernard. Yeah, I guess. Burn. Bernie, Bernard. I think his son might have played for the Huskies. What do you want too. me to say about Chris Peterson and his coaching oh, staff today? Oh, my God. I, I literally wrote – I didn't write one thing down about the game. Not one thing. I just I, – I don't know what to make of what I – I was on a plane, first of all, and it's kind of hard to watch on the little screen. Yeah. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I have no answers for what we saw. Woefully unprepared, unbelievably dominant 
dominated by an absolute, and I'm sorry to say it because Stanford doesn't deserve this and certainly student athletes don't deserve this, but I'm going to say it anyway. They were a crap team, a team that was ravaged by injuries. They had guys that had no business being in a Pac-12 game playing offensive line, defensive line, and this was not just a loss. I mean, you could almost, you could, no, you can't accept anything, but if they lose the game and it's like fluky and it's on turnovers on a two or three plays and they dominate the game statistically, then you say, oh, this was uh, this was a terrible outcome even though you don't. They were dominated in every aspect of the game. Every I can't, I can't even begin to tell you who I would criticize first, so I'm, I'm pointing the finger straight at Chris Peterson and his coaching staff. That, that team was not ready to play. This is supposed to be one of the great coaches in America – and he's supposed to have a great staff. That was that. I hopefully that was rock bottom for Chris Peterson because yeah. it was awful. It was awful watching it on Saturday night. Are you talking more about scheme X's and O's out coached, or more about his guys just didn't look like they wanted to be there and didn't get up for the game? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm. Ta- I, here's what I know: is that his offensive line, his defensive front seven, should have dominated that game and got pushed. Yeah all over the field by the last six offensive linemen that Stanford had. Literally, they were down to their – they were playing their worst six active offensive linemen. I did hear That's who they, they were playing. I heard they had five injuries on the O-line. Five. And and they were – anytime they wanted, seven yards, six yards, yeah. eight yards, no pressure. They threw the ball all over them. Uh, total yards, 400 and almost 500 to something in the ones. I mean, it was just wide receiver play awful, dropping balls, yeah. only Fuller. In fact, at one point, a wide receiver hadn't even made a catch except for Fuller, like late into the third, early into the fourth quarter. I saw two or three balls bouncing off. It was it, terrible. It, and and I don't know hard. I don't know what to think. Yeah. I don't know what to think. And I would I would believe that the ratcheting up of pressure. I'm not saying that Chris Peterson people should be calling for his head. Yeah, like he's not, he's not on the hot seat. I mean, not right? on a hot seat. Yeah. But there should be some radical criticism of him and his coaching staff this week. This should be very, very, this should be the most criticism he has gotten since he signed the contract at Motley because that was pathetic. It was pathetic. It was, it was just, it was just outrageous on every level that they would be outplayed the way they did. Yeah, I once heard Magic Johnson say that during the the Showtime era when they were just pummeling people, he would have to like pick fights during games to kind of motivate himself. Get him going. To get him going. Yeah. But that's what separates great teams or even really good teams is they find a way to get up for these games against teams you should beat. And I don't. They clearly didn't do that last let's, night. Let's put it this way. Well, it was Saturday night. Yeah, it wasn't that's right. Last night. That's right. Let's put it this way. If they played like they played on Saturday night every game the rest of the year. I got to look at their schedule. They probably, if they, they may not win a game. Yeah, who's who's worse than Stanford? Well, there might be somebody that's worse. I mean, Oregon State might be. They, they've beaten mm. some teams. I think they beat Oregon State 31-28, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, but point taken. If, yeah. if That Washington played to a level on Saturday night where they were the – Washington was the worst team in the Pac-12 on Saturday night. I'm going to say that again. And that's not hyperbole. Washington was the worst team in the conference. Chris Peterson's team was the worst team in the conference on Saturday night. Not just on that Saturday. That team right there played like the worst team in the conference. That's all I'm going to say. So there better be, let's see what happens as we move forward. 
They ain't, by the way, they're not playing for the final four. They're not going to be in the final. <laughs> they're not going to be in the call. At least I can rest easy now, knowing yeah, yeah. that I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about the playoffs for sure. But before uh, the game started, you heard the announcers almost begging the viewers to stick around for this. They were trying because they knew it was a huge mismatch, and they were basically they were two touchdown favorites. Yeah, they were basically saying like, "Oh, you never know what can happen." And then they go down the field on the first drive. They look great. He's five for he's five. No, I'm talking about Washington. Oh, oh okay. five for five. He's five for five on the first drive. They punch it in. It's seven nothing. Boom, or seven three, and, and you're like, "Oh my god, this is going to be so easy. It's going to be ugly. This is going to be so easy for Jacob Eason." Yeah. And then he started five for five, and then later in the game they put up his graphic, and I think he was fifteen at one point, fifteen of thirty six. So if he was fifteen Jeez. of thirty six and he was five for five, <laughs> yeah. East Case State math or the University of Southern Crossroads. I got it. Ten for thirty. Oh, sorry, sorry. Good. Five for five. Yeah, yeah, I got it. And then at one point he was fifteen of thirty six. Mm-hmm. So he was. 10 of his next 31 passes. Yeah. And he was I, – I know that people are writing about what's wrong with the passing game and what's wrong with Jacob Eason. Is he as good as everybody's supposed to be or whatever? And did he have a bad night? For me, if I were listing – and I'm not going to do it because I want to get to something a little bit more uplifting. But yeah. if I was going to list 1 through 10 the embarrassing elements of Washington's performance on Saturday night, Jacob Eason would be really close to the bottom of those 10. There'd be eight or nine other things yeah. that I would discuss way before I would talk about. I mean, the guy, first of all, why, he's running for his life. He's Why is he running for they're, – they're rushing three guys. They're rushing three guys that aren't even good enough to have Pac-12 scholarships against a, a, a five- and six-man offensive line. Yeah. And he can't – they don't even give him enough time to throw the ball. Well, he's running for his life. And a first-round pick at left tackle, by the way. An NFL first-round pick. Yeah, and he's running for his life. That's your team. Yeah. That's your team. They just did not look like – I think it's kind of what happened to Utah against USC that game a couple of weeks ago. I think they just overlooked them and just could not get up for it. They and should still beat them. They got so much more talent than Stanford. Yeah. They should be able to sleepwalk, not get up for the game, and still win that game. They should be making the ju- – I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, bad. Really, really bad. Bad look for Chris Peterson and his staff. Yeah. Very, very bad look for Chris Peterson and his staff. Are you still in the afterglow of the Thursday night – 30 to 29 Seahawks. It makes watching the NFL so much more fun when your team comes off a win. It's so much more fun to watch these other teams. Oh, that guy lost. Our team's better. Ha ha. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you saw the Packers and the and the Dallas. I game. saw that, yeah. On Sunday. Yeah. yeah. The Packers I did. <laughs> saw it. The Packers were killing Dallas. Yeah. yeah. Who would have seen that coming? In the NFL, you just never quite oh, know what's going to happen, do you? But then the Cowboys came back, made a game of it at the end. The guy yeah. missed the field goal. But uh yeah, I'm I'm I, you know, I don't like those Thursday night games, but when you win the Thursday night game and then you can relax yeah, for 10 days and great. your fan base can sit and watch, as you say, the other games and just know you've got the win in your pocket, you're already 4-1. and one. Like on Monday night, not tomorrow night, on Monday night, yes. the 49ers are going to play the Browns. Now, a lot of people will be listening to this on Tuesday, Wednesday. You guys already know the score. But on Monday night, you'll be rooting hard for the Browns and then six days later, <laughs> right. you'll be rooting for the Seahawks to decapitate the Browns, yes. right? So that's just the way the NFL works. So fun to watch the team the Seahawks are going to play next, but then a, divi- a division rival, too. I yeah. mean, you get to watch both of them and see the, how they the, look. The, the, the Niners need to lo- start losing a game here and there. And I, nice. think I think they will. I think they will. feel like they haven't played forever, by the way, the yeah, 49ers? Because they didn't play. <laughs> they haven't played forever. Yeah. Uh, so the 49ers and the Browns, on, and so you got to 4-1, and one, and I still think uh, I'll do some still thinking for the people that don't have, that aren't patrons, and Grandma Maggie will tell you that you need to be a patron. Was it Maggie? 
Maggie Blair? Blair. Maggie oh, Blair. gotcha. Okay. Grandma Maggie Blair. I hope I have that right. Uh, <laughs> I, I still think that Russell Wilson in the first five games has gone from a very good top eight or ten quarterback in the NFL to a legitimate, if not MVP leader, than MVP contender. I know that Patrick Mahomes gets all the play and yeah. he's the MVP and he's doing things that have never been done before. Russell Wilson is right in the middle of the MVP discussion. He was brilliant. I still think he was brilliant on Thursday night. And I still think, after watching it from different angles and looking at percentages and analysis and everything, I still think the, the Russell Wilson rolling to his left, across his body throw with a man in his face, to Tyler Lockett, who catches it in the corner and tippy-toes, I still think from a... Pass catch combo. Yep. When you when you consider, and I'm not I'm not being statistical here. When you consider consider the level of difficulty of the throw, to and combine it with the level of difficulty of the catch and stay in bounds, I'm not so sure that in 42 years of watching the NFL closely as I have that I've ever I may not have ever seen a better combination of pass and catch than that game, than, than that play for a touchdown. He yes. had no business throwing that ball. No. Nobody looked open. Like, what quarterback would take that shot and then not only take the shot, but then complete it? It was You crazy. had Luke Wilson bringing – I don't know why Luke Wilson was so close in the area. He brought his defense. So there were two defenders in the area. If he underthrows it at all, it's intercepted. Yep. If, he, if he throws it behind him at all, it's probably intercepted. And he puts it right on the – and then the catch. Yeah. And the body, the, the body control in the catch. So I still, I still think that was one of the great pass-catch combos. I still think, and I'm going to read you something, that Pete Carroll almost blew the game in the first half when he didn't go for it on fourth and inches. I got a little something for you to read. Would you like me to read I'm ready, yeah. Go ahead. All right. This was written by Stephen Ruiz. Okay. Uh, I think USA Today, Stephen Ruiz. Pete Carroll has never been a coach who seems to care about utilizing analytics in order to optimize the Seahawks' chances of winning. If it, that were the case, he and offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer would let Russell Wilson, one of the very best NFL quarterbacks, throw the ball a lot more, and he would not have kicked a field goal late in the first half of a game the Seahawks would win thanks to a missed field goal by Rams kicker Greg Zerline. Let's go back to that decision. 138 on the clock in the second quarter. The Seahawks have the ball at the Rams' 30-yard line. It's officially fourth and one, but it's more like, and they show the picture, fourth and inches. The analytics are pretty clear here. You go for it every time. Seattle did not. Carroll called for the field goal unit. Jason Myers missed the kick. Now let's just ignore the results of the kick right now. For right now, the case for Carroll going for it, even if he knew for a fact that Myers would make it, is pretty strong. We don't even need numbers to explain why, although I will present them here in a moment. Did you know, I'll go skip down to the article, that there was a better chance of getting the first down on fourth and one than there was of the guy making the field goal? Statistically. Statistically. So not only, hmm. so everybody says, oh, he's he's playing by the numbers yeah, by taking, taking the, the three. Points. Taking the three. Yeah. Statistics in the last like five years in the NFL show that fourth and inches, the amount of inches that they needed to get that on fourth down versus a guy kicking a 47-yard field goal, that statistically you had a better chance 
Crazy. to actually get the first down. And so I went all through this on 59P. I'm not going to get all lathered up and do it again. I'm, ju- <laughs> I- I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying yeah. that he made a very poor tactical decision at the end of the first half. There is no defending that. And there have been tons of articles like the one I just read that have discussed why he made a, a bad decision. And then they all go into going for the jugular. They're up 14 to six at the time or right? 14 to six. They could make it 21 to six, whatever. They could not li- let the Rams get the ball. To me, the, the point that's not being discussed enough that I said to you at 59P is the Rams offense was completely out of sync and the Seahawks were defense were, were, were winning big against the Rams yeah. offense the entire first half. And by kicking the field goal, even if he would have made it, you're giving the Rams the two-minute offense, the ball, to re-energize their offense, to get back in sync. What you were trying to do by going for it on fourth down, more than anything, more than the points, was make the Rams go into halftime out of sync offensively. That's right. Right? Yep. But instead, you kick the field goal. Even if you make it and miss it, you give them the 138 or 140, and then they go down, they get in sync, they get recharged, and all of a sudden they have a huge offensive output in the second half. They got a little hope. They got a little hope, but yep. they got – they Because they, um, they saw the – oh, what this... is it? What is the thing? You know, uh, clear, one, two, three, clear, boom, and they shock oh, it. They got shocked. The defibrillator. In... Yes. Yes. Uh, clear. <laughs> yeah. they, they got shocked. You're right. They it... shocked themselves yep. back into rhythm, and then their passing game had a huge second half, and they almost lost the game. This was uh, – I still believe from 59P to now, I still believe that was a very poor decision on Thursday night and almost cost them the game. And I would have blamed the game on Pete Carroll had they not won it in the second half. Yeah, you did yeah. say that if Chris Carson fumbled 12 times, you still would have blamed it on Pete Carroll, right? I mean, 12 times that game he fumbles, you'd if, still if, Pete Carroll's if, fault if, if they would have lost. If they lost the game in the second half after he didn't go for it and go for the jugular at that point, yes, I would have found a way to blame the game on Pete Carroll. It'll be fun to watch his choices going forward to see if this game kind of had an effect on him. If you had him sitting here, and I don't know if he'd ever give you the truth, I wonder if he would agree with what you're saying, that he would he would well, do it differently if he had it over if he could do it over again. Well, here, you really want to hear his answer? Was he in the closet? Oh, he's we got an answer. <laughs> okay, from I'm him. ready. We got an answer from him. It's later on. I wasn't going to do this, but okay, okay. Uh, Joe Fan, Joe Fan, but it's a true true name. Joe Fan, a member of the media, asked. This is his tweet. I asked Pete Carroll if not going for it on fourth and one from the Rams' 30 yard line in the second quarter was impacted by what happened in the Saints game. Here's his response, which indicates that analytics really don't play a role in these decisions. This is what Pete Carroll said about going for it. I was just thinking we were going to win the football game, so keep making the decisions that you know you're going to win the football game instead of trying to get desperate or something like that. I just figured Jason would make it because he's such a good kicker. Now, you're giving me a look. That's really unsatisfying. Like, okay, what is that? That doesn't even answer the question. Right. I mean, is, I mean, <laughs> that's like a nothing. That's like a nothing response. Ah, uh, you asked, and that was his answer directly after the game. But your your question of whether he might sitting with me today after reassessing and thinking about it, might ch- I would hope that he would change his mind, yeah. and maybe that'll affect him going forward. He'll be maybe. a better coach. It was a, it was an out and out horrific coaching decision. Yeah. You had them on the ropes. You could. You know, a lot of people would say, Mitch, stop saying it's a knockout punch because in the NFL, you can be down 21-6 if you're a good football team and come back. We see it all the time. Okay, uh, point taken. I won't call it, you know, put the nail in the coffin that yeah. the game's over. 
But you go for it there, you make it, and you either kick the field, you take the clock all the way down, and you either kick the field goal, go 17-6, or you score a touchdown, go 21-6. And the Rams are out of sync. Okay, it's the game's not over, but it's real close. Yeah, there's a term we And it's Thursday, by the way, it's Thursday night, and they're playing on a short work week, and yeah. I mean... I'm telling you, you, they might just zip it up and just say, this is a loss. We'll get them back when we get them in Los Angeles. We'll get the Seahawks. Re- right. We'll get revenge when they get them in Los Angeles. Not our night. Moving on. That's right. Almost. You're yeah. almost there at 21-6 to six at halftime. There's a term we use all the time in football when I played and when I coached called break their will. If you can break their will. Could have broken their will with that first. That's step, right. With that fourth down. You could have yeah. broken it by halftime. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you just drop in a one I played and coached? Yes, I did. You as a matter of fact, that's kind of a name dropping. No, it's not. Like, it's kind of when I play. If I played when the I Seahawks, played I it would have been. It would have been a little more name dropping. All right. I don't know. Yeah, but it, I, I think it's a cool term that it really applies to football. You can break people's will and get them to quit. I'm thrilled that they're four and one. I yeah. give Pete Carroll a lot of credit. I, I don't want this to be Mitch's bashing Pete Carroll. I guess I am for that particular decision. I think he's done a wonderful job in grand total. Obvious. I'm not talking about all. I'm talking about this year. I think to have them four and one, I think he's done a nice job. I think Shoddy's done a nice job. I don't want to be the guy, oh, Mitch is just looking for an opportunity to hammer Pete Carroll. I'm saying on this particular decision, this was a horse crap decision. And he, he I hope he won't make it. And he's typically the guy that does That's go right. for the jugular. Right. And he didn't do it. He let up. He let he let them hang around. He let the champ kind of stay. I he let I him made, off the hook. I made I made this I made this analogy <laughs> to you on fifty nine P. It was like the boxer, the heavyweight boxer, who was stunned and was wobbly and was not de- couldn't defend himself, and the other guy who has to, at that point, with 30 seconds to go in the round, pounce on him, try to knock him out before the end of the round, yeah. right? And it would be like the other guy just saying, "No, I'm gonna let him. I'm gonna let him live to the end of the round. Right. Let him recover and recuperate." And a little that's bit. what they kind of did yeah. in that second. All right. You see the Percy Harvin interview? Do you want to discuss that? Yeah, I do, actually. I I was going to ask you (laughs) what you thought of Percy Harbin before that interview and if if your, I don't know, if your opinion of him changed at all after hearing it, because mine kind of did. We locked up. Um, You know, the owners had to come in in the locker room and the fact of hitting them into the trash can and uh, all that type stuff, it, 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 it was true. There's not a game I played in that I wasn't high. I just always thought he was sort of of a difficult person. You but, did? You well, yeah. thought that? Well, he seems really difficult. Okay, so why why do you feel like it's changed after seeing that? Oh, because you got you have more c- compassion for him. Yeah, I didn't know he suffered oh, from anxiety. Oh, okay, that's he, yeah. And he said he was. Is that th- what you do, by the way, when you suffer from an anxiety disorder? Do you get stoned? Is that is that an official? Well, I'm not a spokesperson for marijuana, but there are a lot of medicinal uses for it, and this may be one of them. Uh, for anxiety disorder, does now, marijuana help? Well. It settles you down. Somebody once told me that it can also cause anxiety from time to time. (laughs) Why is that guy staring at me? He totally knows, doesn't he? But, you know, he said at his press conference his back was drenched when he was in Seattle. He had to get two bottles of water if you go back and watch it because he was like dry mouth. And I was kind of feeling sorry for him. I didn't know he suffered from that. Well, I knew that he he had some demons and that he had some mental issues. And Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, yeah, that's always, I think that's pretty, pretty well known in terms of Percy Harvin. Uh, I've never heard him talk about the incident before the Super Bowl. I thought that was, that was interesting. very interesting. Yeah. That he said that what set him off was that he overheard an interview of Golden Tate where Golden Tate, when Golden Tate was asked the day before the Super Bowl, uh, does it matter whether you have, what if Percy can't play, he didn't play in the last game? And he said something to the effect of, 
we can win or we can win with or without him. We, we got we got here without him. We got him without him. Yeah. We got we don't need him if he's there good. And, and Percy took offense to that and confronted him. And there was a brawl. Yeah, there was literally a brawl one day before they won the Super Bowl. Yeah, uh, against the uh, the Denver Broncos, and he says that he 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 punched him. Well, we know he had a black eye. This is the day before, and he ended up in a in a garbage can. They said garbage ga- can. Yeah. Golden Tate ended up in a garbage can. It's like a Do you bad- think Golden Tate felt good about this over in New York, hearing, <laughs> right. seeing this on Twitter, seeing <laughs> yeah. seeing that he ended up ended up in a garbage can? How do you think Golden took all? This? Well, he's from Notre Dame. He's probably not much of a fighter. You know, he's a he's soft. Those those Notre Dame <laughs> private school guys. He's but the one thing that I that I didn't think about, and I think that I could see that really irritating Percy. Not because he wasn't there. He knows he wasn't there most of the year. But let's not forget, he got concussed the game before. Remember against the I Saints? I don't remember. I, I, I thought he missed the game before. I think the I, championship game? So, yeah, maybe he got concussed before the championship, and then yeah. he had to miss it. Yeah. But So I could see where he, he – in his mind, I'm look, guys, I'm still competing. I'm laying my body out here. I got a freaking – and his concussion was no joke, if you remember it. I think it was against the Saints. Anyway, so in his mind, I'm putting my body, I'm putting my life out here, and you're yeah. gonna say it doesn't matter if I'm here or not. I could see that bugging you. So I'm kind of on his side on this one. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm I'm seeing a pro Percy Harvin guy. That's right. I'm ready for it. Let's bring him out of retirement. <laughs> he wants to play. <laughs> oh, does he? Yeah. Still? Oh yeah. He's been trying to play all year. He's been trying to play, and he was gonna play in the XFL or something. He got an invitation to try out in the XFL or something. But yeah, his uh, his age. I think Joel Siegel is still his agent. I know Joel a little bit, but. Uh, uh, Percy Harvin still wants to play football. He still wants to play football. Was there anybody faster than him at the time? He was an insane. I was athlete. so happy when they got him. I thought he was such a difference maker. But I'm I'm a sucker for acquiring the the disgruntled other. Yeah. I want Jalen Ramsey. Too, yeah. I wanted Jadavion. I want them all. Marshawn. I, I loved wanted it. Dion Branch. Uh, Dion. Uh, Oh, they got Dion the wide, Branch. Yeah, De- is he the wide receiver yeah. from the Patriots? Yeah, they yeah, got, they yeah, went back to the Patriots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted little Dion yeah, Branch. Right. I want everybody. Yeah. I always think that the guy across I, the grass is always greener for me on this. Oh, it didn't work for them, but it'll totally work for Jaylen us. Jalen, <laughs> I, I, I tweeted out, and I believe I, I believe this that I think they're the front runner in the NFC with Jalen Ramsey. I think the Jalen Ramsey, and that's by the way the other part that I didn't mention on. I still think I still think from Thursday night that the Seahawks have big problems in their defensive pass, their defense against the pass, passing game defense. It doesn't feel like a Super Bowl team, does it? Yeah. I think that it's big. And, and everybody just wants to tweet, hey, they're going to get – when they start getting pa- uh, pressure on the quarterback, and I'm, I'm obsessed with the pass rush like everybody else, but I don't think it's just about that. In fact, I'm not even sure that's the biggest part of this. I think that there's an, an underneath quick passing game where teams are just chomping off – plays and yardage against them because their their corners either can't play press coverage or they play off of them one of the two either they play off and they give lots of space I mean you saw how the Rams went down in that final drive and a lot of drives in the second half boop boop very very easy and I know everybody says well get pass rush well if you're if you're if you're taking the snap and taking two steps and throwing the ball real quick or real quick yeah. And you're and you're finding yeah. Cooper Cup open eight yards down the field on a quick move, and then he gets twelve. Well, no pass rush in the world. You could have yeah. the great greatest pass rush in the world yeah. if 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 you can't cover the intermediate and short passing game. And I think that's the issue. The issue is either they don't press, they can't get up there in their face and take those eight nine yard 
uh, targets away because they're afraid of getting beaten deep. So they give up all kinds of pa- and it, it, it's so easy right now. The pa- right now, I would just be salivating if I were an opposing team that had a good short passing game. I would just dink and dunk yep. them to death. I would I would throw for 400 yards. My quarterback would throw for 400 yards on little seven and eight and nine and ten yard. I wouldn't even throw the ball downfield. I wouldn't even set up a guy and let Jadavian Clowney come in. I would just keep getting rid of it quickly and and the, and the short passing game. That's their big problem. And I think with Jalen Ram- so to get back to Jalen Ramsey, I know he's not going to get traded and the Jaguars are never going to trade him. I think what he does is he's the best corner in the NFL right now. They say he's the best stud corner right now in the NFL. He gives them, you put him on one side and Shaq Griffin on the other now. I know Trey Flowers, whatever. Yeah. And Jalen Ramsey will get, will, t- will get in somebody's face. He will play press coverage, and you will not be able to complete those quick eight and nine yarders against Jalen Ramsey. So now a lot of that goes away. Yeah. And then what he what he fosters for the rest of the defensive backfield, you know, the, 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 the trickle-down down yeah. effect. Shaq Griffin's a good number two corner, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah. He's not a great number one That's corner, right. but I think he's an okay, solid number two corner. And Maybe yep. he plays up on him, and now maybe things change. If you get one corner who can really get in somebody's face can make all the difference. and say, you know what, Cooper Cup, you're not, you're not going and curling at seven yards and getting an easy completion on me. We're just not, we're not playing that game. And so that's why I think that they should go out and try to get Jalen Ram, but he's not available apparently. I hate to be the, oh, remember the Legion of Boom, how good they were, but that's what they were great at. And if you remember the Super Bowl against the Broncos, Welker ran his mouth about how they're going to run all these crossing routes and didn't work out too well for him because they had corners out. who could get in their faces. And they had safeties who, if the corners messed up, were ready. That's right. We're yeah. ready. That doesn't hurt either, having no, Earl Thomas that, back there. And Cam Chancellor. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. <laughs> he wasn't too bad. Yeah. You, you want to run a slant and get by yeah. Richard Sherman? 31's waiting for Feel you. Feel free. Yeah. And yeah. then you won't know where you are. You, you, you may catch that one. <laughs> yeah. You won't catch many more, and you don't remember the one that you caught. That's exactly so, right. So, you know, there's, all that breeds, and I just think that they're secondary right now is just is very vulnerable to the intermediate and underneath passing game. Anyway, uh, we've got four good interviews and lots of stuff. So you probably have a lot of stuff on your list. Bunch I of got stuff. a I got a bunch of stuff on bunch of little stuff on my. Are you going to the Bill Maher show? Did you tell me? I'm going to go see Real Time with Bill Maher. Real on Time with why? Why would you do? Because your friend is the writer. No, he's or a producer. Producer. Yeah. So why are you doing that? I well, thought you, I thought you're going to go to Burbank to work. Well, I'll be working on Friday, but yeah. the, they taped the show at 7. So he actually texted me a couple days ago and said, hey, do you want to come to the show? And I said, great, I'm in. And then he told me who the guest was. And I was like, ooh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. See, I, never, I don't know that I've ever even seen the show. So oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen probably Little every bit. one. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I'm a, I was a big fan of the show. I, I actually forgot. I mean, I didn't forget that he worked there, but I never even thought about asking for tickets or any of that stuff. But, yeah, so the guest that night is going to be Howard Stern. Really? Yeah, which is going to be kind of cool. I mean, you know, wow. radio guys, we have to go kiss the ring, right? I mean, you know, whether you like him or not, he's he's the Pope for Catholics, right? I mean, you know, he's the guy. He yeah. opened doors for everybody. Yeah. So I, I don't have anything but uh, reverence for the guy. Yeah. No. Yeah, so it'll be cool to, to see him, and I'm going to watch it from the booth, I was told. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. So this will be your how many weekends in a row at Burbank? This will be my fourth weekend in a out, row. Out of how many? And you got to go how many in a row? Uh, Five... Six and then maybe one off, and then a seventh, and then an eighth. All right. Yeah. I'm just going to suggest for all of our Mitch Unfiltered listeners, uh, you're going to get four, I think, pretty good interviews. New highs. I'm doing this top of my head. New highs. So Brady, Brady Henderson. We're going to do the Dallas, the mm-hmm. Dallas uh, murder trial. Whether you like it or not, we're doing it. And then a really good discussion with an ESPN writer on whether athletes should be paid. Student athletes 
They should allow them to be paid for their likeness, video game likeness, appearance fees. Should they be able to put some extra money in their pockets in this billion-dollar industry? So four good interviews, and then you and I, I, I would just gather... I, People should listen to our last segment. I want people to listen to the, make sure you listen to the last segment because it's going to be really good. So now it's got to be good. So much. Oh, I know a lot of pressure now. Yeah. All right. I'm out of here. You know, Hotshot, as the Seahawks continue to win games in 2019, I still feel the need to remind you that you can sit home, watch the Hawks stride towards the NFC West title and enjoy delicious Zeke's pizza and craft beer at the same time. Now, this weekend's game against the Browns starts at 10 a.m., so that might not be the best example, but in your family room on Sundays, on Monday nights, on Thursday nights like last Thursday against the Rams, just download and use their mobile app, order online, zekespizza.com, or call 206-285-8646. Great Zeke's Pizza, craft beer and cider, and the Seahawks. It's a terrific combination. Just as long as it's a minimum order of $15, you can mix and match order six different beers, whatever you want, and all the drivers have those shoulder coolers so everything arrives nice and cold. So time to start watching the Seahawks games with Zeke's Pizza, either at home or at one of the locations, and we're going to do another viewing party here very, very shortly. So who's in? 206-285-8646, Zeke'sPizza.com, or download and use the mobile app. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Uh Filtered. I think Auburn, with their offensive play calling now in the hands again of Gus Malzahn, will be very, very steady on that side of the ball, but their defense will dominate a still fledgling offensive line for Florida. Until I see otherwise, I'm going with Iowa. Uh, I think it'll be low scoring. I think it's kind of like a 21-17 game. But I'm going to go with Nate Stanley and AJ Epinesa and company uh, take down the Wolverines. Ohio State and Oklahoma are the best two teams in the country right now. So I think they are absolutely going to continue to roll. McClatcher in motion. Throwback coming with a flag down. It's a touchdown for now to the tight end, Cade Otten. Play action for Mills again. Pocket held up. Mills wide open. Fehoko touchdown. Breakdown for six. They'll work out of the shotgun second and goal, trying to run it in with Scarlett. And he dives contact to get in. Two seconds to go. They'll spot the ball. The clock will run. And Stanford scores a Pac-12 upset late night. 23-13. to Fireplace Home Solutions is... Uh thrilled to bring you the uh, the weekly chat with Rick Neuheisel of CBS and I hate to do this but I I you know I'm paid the big bucks now <laughs> to do this <laughs> oh gosh do I I guess I have to ask you whether you still have Washington in your final four of college football in the playoff in January I am uh, unhappy to announce that they have left the building. They, they are no longer part of the college football playoff uh, scenario. Doesn't mean they can't still win the Pac-12 and get a nice berth in the Rose Bowl, but uh, I don't see them making the Final Four given all the uh, great performances we've seen around the country. Everybody is trying to understand. I know it was late your time, very, very late East Coast time, 
this has got to be a low for the Chris Peterson tenure to lose a game where you figure you had them outclassed, they were undermanned, injury-ravaged, a Stanford team that had given up loads of points and losses to lesser teams. To go down there and put together this type of performance has left everybody wondering what the heck happened. You want to take a shot at it? Well, it's the exact same thing that happened in 2017 and the exact same thing that happened in 2015, the last two times Chris Peterson's teams went to Stanford. In 2015, he was outrushed 188 yards to 113. In 2017, he was outrushed 195 to 135. And last night, he was outrushed 189 to 88. And in all those games, Mitch, the time of possession was wildly in favor of Stanford. 39 minutes last night, 36 and change in 17, and 40 minutes and change in 15. And when you're playing behind the eight ball and you're allowing the uh, opponent to kind of dictate as Stanford is dictated in each of those three games on the farm, you're putting yourself in harm's way. And obviously it, uh, it got him again last night. So are you saying that they should be running it better? They should be stopping the run better. Are you uh, supposing that maybe they should be throwing it? Should they be throwing it more? Should they come in there, spread them out and, and throw the ball around? How should they approach these games? I'm just saying that the same they allowed Stanford to dictate the terms of the game. I see. And if you studied Stanford this year, they were having some real difficulties uh, in terms of running the ball themselves. Uh, so you needed to take advantage of that by ganging up on the run and forcing them to throw the ball, especially with KJ Costello not on the not on the the roster, at least not active yesterday. And then the other thing is there are two teams that scored 45 points against the Stanford defense, UCF and USC, and both of them did it by spreading the formations and throwing the ball a lot. And I thought, uh, you know, watching certainly Jacob Eason uh, and throw the ball, I think he's capable of that. And there's enough receivers on that team, including a very talented Hunter Bryant tight end that got one catch. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at Aaron Fuller. He had had a nice night in terms of catches, but that uh, the Chelly kid who yep. I think had 12 catches or something like that in the Rose Bowl, right. he got one catch. I, I don't know why they're not utilizing some more formation stuff so they can get into some things that are working for other teams. Yeah, and a lot of balls are being dropped. That's a, that's another part of the story for Washington this year. You know, you know, I, I don't know whether Chris Peterson has faced a week like this. He went down there. He was two touchdown favorites. The world expected them to win the game and win easy. And I guess I, I don't want to bring up a sore subject, but I would ask you, do you recall a game or two in your coaching tenure, wherever, whatever stop, wherever you might have been, where you were supposed to win easy and you left the building going, what the heck just happened? And then you had to figure it out that week, try to figure it out that week? Oh, all too often. I can recall that, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, that's part of, the, part of the thing. And sometimes you just you, you talk to your team until you're blue in the face and they still don't believe you. Uh, you know, this is a Stanford team that had taken on the chin a few weeks in a row, found a way uh, to kick a last-minute field goal to win in Corvallis, a team that had been downtrodden over the last couple of years in the Pac-12. So it would have been hard to get your team to believe that they needed their best to go down and beat Stanford, but that is exactly what took place. Now they have uh, their backs against the wall, especially with Oregon holding serve there against Cal. Uh, Oregon's got a two-game lead. 
uh, they're coming to Husky Stadium in a couple of weeks, but uh, there's no margin for error for the Huskies, so they're going to have to play perfect football here yeah. the west of the way if they expect to win the North. It almost feels like everybody's just conceding the North to Oregon. Everybody's losing games here and there that they're not supposed well, to lose. I mean, everybody outside of Utah who's in the South seems to just be falling by the wayside, and Oregon just goes about winning football games. Yeah, Oregon's playing good football, especially on the defensive side, but they, they can be had. Uh, as Auburn proved, uh, and, and it's there's far too much football and far too many teams capable of playing good football in the Pac-12 to be just conceding anything to Oregon, especially when you get a chance to knock them off on your home turf here in a couple of weeks. But uh, clearly they're going to have to play great football, and the leadership of the team is going to have to step up and make sure practice is a little bit more uh, – uh, pertinent to what has to happen, which means a little bit more in the way of uh, uh, some measure of excitement, some measure of let's get something accomplished here today. By the way, did you see, you may not have seen it, the Oregon player take down the fan? I did not. I did not <laughs> see that. I read about it, but uh, I, he was, I, he was, he was bragging about the uh, technique that he used. Yeah, it was I know great that. tackle. So, uh, I have it must to send have been it to a heck you. Of a hit. Yeah, I know you're not. I know you're a little <laughs> it must bit technical. You're, you're a techno. You're technologically challenged. I know that, like me. So I'll figure yeah. a way to get it for I you. Have but... what, Mitch, I have what we call acquired helplessness. You just have to understand <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember streakers? You remember streakers or people running out on the field during your coaching days, or no? Oh, why did you have to even bring that up? You want to. You want to hear the most. <laughs> hard luck story yes i don't know if your yes. if your podcast has enough time for this hard luck story but i was coaching at, i was coaching at the ucla and we had uh, the arizona wildcats on a thursday night one of those games where the whole country is going to be watching it's yeah. espn it's reese davis it's jesse palmer <laughs> i don't know if david pollack was there too but they're all they're all in this deal and and we go into tucson and nick Foles is their quarterback right yeah and it, it, they, I think they had just let go of their, co- uh, of their coach. Uh, Mike Stoops had just been let go. So they've got a, a new coach. But Nick Foles just, you know, just dropped dimes on us. And we're down 42-7, to 7, Mitch. 42-7. to 7. It could not have gone worse. I'm just imagining how much Jesse Palmer saying that UCLA <laughs> needs to get a new coach and, you know, redetermine what the heck's going on in Bruin land and so yeah, forth. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to get out of the end of the half. I handed off to Jonathan Franklin on, on a, a draw play, all right? A draw play that ends up, he gets face masked. And so instead of getting into the locker room where I can just start to talk to my team about playing a much more representative second half, we get a 15-yard penalty, which takes us out to about midfield. When we go to midfield, all right. Now I have to take a Hail Mary shot, right? Because, I mean, we're down 42 to 7. Sure. So I put my three receivers out to the wide to the right, which happened to be our sideline. And Arizona accommodates by putting three uh, of their defenders over the top of them, one of which was a kid by the name of Shaquille Richardson, who had actually been on our team at UCLA uh, prior to this. Mm-hmm. And he, he was over there talking a little smack to our receivers. Now, he had gotten in trouble. I had to suspend him, and rather than deal with the suspension, he chose to transfer, uh-huh. and he went to Arizona, and now, obviously, they're up 42-7, to 7, so he's <laughs> talking some noise. My three guys are up. They, they, they're talking back to him, which would have been no big deal. There's a lot of smack talking going on in a game, 
But in this particular smack talking, there's no official because you know what that official's doing? He's watching his uh, uh, what he thought was his uh, official friend on the opposite sideline, what he thought was his line judge. His line judge starts running into the ball, and instead of running into the oh, ball, waving this. his hands, he's taking his clothes this. off. I remember this. It yeah. was it was a student yes. disrobing, you know, <laughs> with remember. the striped shirt yeah. going here, and yeah. it, the only thing not playing was a burlesque song, right? <laughs> because he's going through this whole strip tease act, yeah. and now he starts running towards the uh, towards the crossbar behind the action, and all the officials are running to take him down. So they're not watching this three-on-three, which now becomes, was jawing back and forth, becomes now punching back and forth, which ends up with a field-clearing brawl. I mean, both benches are empty. There's, (laughs) it's a melee. All on television for Jesse Palmer to break down for. Which now goes, which now cuts to the discipline of the, of the UCLA team, because not only were we poor that night, down 42 to seven, but now we have no discipline. Uh, we have we had character issues. It was this, that, and the other thing. It uh, could not have been worse. Uh, All caused by a streaker. I remember. It's funny. Thanks for bringing it up. As you, Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> as you as you were telling the story, I had no idea where you were going. And then when you started to get to the punchline, I remember seeing the video. I remember vividly. I just didn't remember who the two teams were. What what are, what are the chances that New Heisel was on the on the sidelines during that? Incredible. Let me give you the uh, postscript. <laughs> the next morning, I had to deal with. Watching that video, literally like a like a uh, official watching a replay, right? Yeah. To try to, to to defend some of my student athletes so that I could get them into the game the next week against Cal. Uh, we ended up playing Cal with three receivers on the roster. Uh, the arrest had been suspended for the game uh, based on what had happened during this brawl, and uh, we found a way with three three wide receivers in uniform, two of which were walk-ons to beat Cal the very next weekend. Okay. Rick Neuheisel. Jesse Palmer said nothing about that. <laughs> the Bachelor. Rick Neuheisel, uh, courtesy of <laughs> Fireside Home Solutions, is our guest. Now, yeah, the Washington performance was poor, and your performance wasn't quite as bad as Washington, but I hate to tell you, Rick's picks. You told me, you told me that Auburn was going to beat Florida. You're wrong on that. You told me that Iowa was going to beat Michigan. You were wrong on that. Uh, you did hit the Ohio State game. They covered. They won the game easily and covered the point spread. So you were one and two, which is not a usual, not a usual performance from from Rick Neuheisel. So I'm expecting you to do a lot better this week. I'm disappointed in both Iowa and Auburn. Uh, Iowa. Well, let's let the numbers talk for themselves. One yard rushing. I don't think in any form of football at any level is that any good. Four turnovers, that's no good, especially when you came into the game having turned the ball over only once all season long and then giving up eight sacks, which squanders a pretty darn good defensive effort where you hold Michigan to three of 13 on third down and just 267 total yards. So it was a wasted, wasted defensive effort for the Hawkeyes. They're going to have to rebound and rebound quickly because Penn State comes to town this week. And I'm not sure what to make of that, uh, that offense. Uh, and I think Penn State's pretty good on defense. So I'm going to probably lean towards Penn State this weekend, even though it's in Iowa City. Okay. okay. And then for Auburn, Gus Malzahn, for whatever reason, came out of what he'd done so brilliantly all season long up till the Florida game in terms of protecting Bo Nix. 
he just he lost sight of the fact that Kyle Trask had been hurt. He came back in and was playing with a sprained MCL, but he was not a guy that was going to hit a bunch of big plays. He what they couldn't protect him long enough, so they they had him in a shell. The game seventeen thirteen, and they get the ball down on the ten yard line. He calls a, a great RPO for Bo Nix on uh, second down and seven, and Nix misses it like he'd missed a bunch of passes. Mm. He had a poor day. And instead of protecting him on third down and just getting the field goal, because you really had him at 17, 13 at the time, they end up forcing the issue and throwing an interception and it turned the entire tide of the game. Nick's just wasn't up to it, but for the first time, Gus Malzahn blinked and uh, tried to force the issue and it cost him. Which leads me to ask you whether you you believe enough in Florida to pick him over LSU and then the other two games I want you to pick, Ellinger versus Hertz in the, what do they call it, the Red River Showdown now. Uh, And A&M, I believe A&M hosting the Crimson Tide of Alabama this weekend. Here come the Crimson Tide and there's a lot of them. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it it is... (laughs) It is. Uh, it's a great weekend, and we got the Trojans going to Notre Dame. It's going to be fun. I told you about the Penn State going to Iowa. There's, yeah. there's some really good games, Michigan State and Wisconsin. But the three that you mentioned, uh, I am going to go with LSU. I think okay. Joe Burrow and company uh, have the ability to uh, to outclass uh, uh, Florida, and I'm probably leaning that way just because of the toll that I thought that game would take. That was a old-fashioned barroom brawl uh, in Gainesville this last weekend. Okay. Great effort by the Gators. It'll be hard for them to to do that again the second week in a row. Don't put it past them because I really like Dan Mullen as a as a guy, and I think he'll have a, a kind of a dual-threat quarterback deal going this week with Emory Jones and Kyle Trask probably you know, with some packages. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to lean LSU there. Uh, and then with uh, respect to the Alabama game going to uh, A&M, I don't – until – uh, Jimbo Fisher treats uh, Kellen Mond like a running threat. Until he brings him along as a runner, I don't trust A&M. I think okay. it's too much on Kellen Mond to handle protections and stuff. I don't think they're gifted enough at wide receiver. I think it's a one-sided okay. uh, Alabama victory. Okay. Maybe a lot of points, but one-sided in that one. Okay. And then the uh, final game. Red River. Uh, Red River. You asked me to. Red the River. Red River rivalry. I, I love. I love Sam Ellinger. I think he is a hero. Uh, I think uh, this one's going to go down to the wire. Both he and Hertz will be spectacular. Tons of points. I'm going to lean uh, Oklahoma by a field goal. Ooh. Do each of those guys stay very much in the Heisman discussion at the end of that game? Each of those two quarterbacks. I think absolutely, and if it goes the other way, if Ellinger finds a way to win by the field goal, given what I think he's going to have to do in terms of the heroics and how he'll have to put on his own cape, uh, I would say that he'll burst onto the scene in the Heisman deal. Okay, uh, Hertz, I think Hertz probably runs for 125 to 150 yards. Okay, and uh, I think it's going to be one. I think it's going to be a really fun game to watch. Yeah, it sounds to me, based on what you're describing, that's a game. That's one of the games of the year to watch as a fan of college football. So I'll make sure that I'm watching Ellinger versus Hertz in the Red River Showdown. Brought to you by Fireside Home Solutions. He's uh, Rick Neuheisel. Really, really appreciate and really nice to be with us on uh, episode number sixty. So I'll, I'll expect to hear from you on uh, episode sixty-one. Thanks so much for for joining us. 
I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to go look at that video again and see what Jesse Palmer has to say. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. See you, Mitch. Take care. And there he is, our weekly visit with Rick Neuheisel, courtesy of Fireside Home Solutions. Just an awful, an awful night for Chris Peterson and all of the Huskies, the coaching staff, the players, a disaster against really a bad football team in Stanford who got up on a Saturday night and really put a hurt and just dominated the game offensively and defensively. And now the Huskies have to be searching for answers with the season really in jeopardy. Don't forget Rick Neuheisel and Peter King and Brady Henderson and Jason Lockenfora and all the good stuff that we do both on the patron show and on the regular show, all the great football in Interviews, the weekly football interviews brought to you by Fireside Home Solutions with six showrooms from Seattle down to Portland. Football season, as I like to say, is also fireplace season. You got to either add a fireplace to your home or change out that crappy one that you've had in your home for all these years with a brand new sleek model, more affordable and efficient than you'd ever expect at Fireside Home Solutions. And here's the way you do it. Let these guys come out to your home for a free consultation. They've been out to my home. And you'll be surprised with the solution and the affordability and the efficiency of the solution that they provide for you. And then take a stroll into one of their showrooms. The assortment at the Bellevue location, for an example, is just off the charts. Old fireplaces waste a ton of energy and Fireside Home Solutions really simplifies the process. They also do great outdoor barbecue setups and garage doors. Fireside Home Solutions start the process by going to their website at Fireside Home solutions.com unfiltered on first down Wilson keeps surveys nowhere to go and back in the end zone touchdown what a catch by Tyler Lockett Wilson keeps airs it out downfield the rookie touchdown DK Metcalf Here's a throw to Moore. Sidesteps for the touchdown. David Moore. Wilson steps through, flips wide open, and caught after a juggle for the touchdown. Carson. Goff throws, pass incomplete for Everett. After reviewing the play, the defender had his hands underneath the ball. Zerline missed it. He might have given a little on that last kick right there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, this has uh, been a while since we we, we had this game uh, and got this win over these guys. These guys have been going great, and uh, so it's, it is a, um, a good accomplishment for us. But there was some stuff that was really amazing tonight. I, I thought Russell played one of the best games I've ever seen him play. I just have never seen him have so much speaking of magic uh, in him. I got to get a couple days off here, and then uh, we'll come back and get rolling uh, on Monday. Well, it's that time of the week to get caught up with the Seahawks, and uh, nobody better to do that than Brady Henderson of ESPN and ESPN.com, the Seahawks insider. It's obviously brought to you by Fireside Home Solutions. In fact, I've seen the Fireside Home Solutions van in my neighborhood three times in the last few weeks. Go to FiresideHomeSolutions.com because football season is fireplace season. I guess we should begin with the most important question, Brady. The, the, a highfalutin Seahawks insider 
when the Seahawks play on Thursday, doesn't have a game to cover over the weekend, what does a guy like you do over the weekend with your free time? <laughs> well, let's just say that I uh, was able to sleep in and uh, got caught up on some sleep, watched a lot of football, and uh, did, did, got a little bit of work done. Okay. Uh, today, so yeah, you know, the 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 Sundays when the Seahawks are off, those are uh, you know as much as I and everybody that else that does this job loves covering games, uh, those always come at a good time. Well, Thursday night for all of us who stayed home and watched it, we were on the edge of our seats just about the entire evening. What was it like for you covering the Rams Seahawks game? They've played a lot of incredibly fun games to watch over the last five or ten years. This has to be right up there, the Thursday night thriller. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I could not think of too many more, um, you know, roller coaster games that, that I've covered. And obviously, the you know the playoff game in Minnesota uh, a few years ago with you know in the outdoors there with the miss kick that was one of them. But um, just in terms of going all the way down to the end and just an exciting. Uh, you know, for a Thursday night game, everybody always complains about how bad those are at times. You could not have asked for a better game than that any day of the week. Um, you know, I, I, I think that Greg Zerline kind of bailed me out a little bit because after <laughs> Tedrick Thompson had that interception, I think I tweeted something about, um, you know, making a play to seal the Seahawks victory. So I, I got a little ahead of myself there, and I'm sure that I would never have heard the end of that yeah. uh, had the Seahawks lost that game. So uh, Greg Zerline bailed me out there a okay, little bit. Okay, so I'll ask you the same question that I've asked everybody else. Before Zerline attempted that 43-yarder, you would have said the Brady-Henderson index would have said what percentage chance – that Zerline's going to connect from 43 and the Rams are going to beat the Seahawks? I probably would have said, just thinking of it in terms of how many times out of 10 does he make that kick, I would probably say eight. Uh, so, you know, somewhere in the 80s. Now, you know, he is one of the best kickers in the NFL. Now, the one thing that, um, you know, the, the one reason why I wouldn't be 10 out of 10 is just because, you know, that is the north end of that stadium. That's the open end. Uh, and that tends to be the more difficult end of that stadium to kick in. Um, you know, may have had been a factor in Jason Myers missing that kick, uh, you know, at the end yeah. of, the, of the first half. And you just tend to see, um, I'm interested to look at the numbers in terms of missed kicks uh, on the south end, which is the closed end of the stadium, versus the north end, which you tend to get a little bit more uh, wind in there for obvious reasons. So, um, but even then, the best, you know, one of the best kickers in the NFL, I think he makes that eight times out of ten. All right, Brady Henderson, I'm going to put you on the, on the hot seat. Uh, during the game on Twitter, then with our 59P for patrons after the game, and then on this episode of 60, uh, I, I've been very critical of the decision that Pete Carroll made in the first half to not go for it. Um, the obvious reasons that I have, he had the Rams kind of on their heels, a chance, maybe not a knockout blow to really, uh, on fourth and inches, to really put the game in a one-sided fashion. He doesn't go for it. They miss the field goal. The Rams get on the field. They go right down the field. They kind of get into rhythm offensively in that last drive of the second quarter. Were you as perplexed as I was that that uh, Pete Carroll did not just decide to go for it in the second quarter. You know, I really wasn't, and you know, I, I certainly would not have faulted him either way. You know, I, that that's a situation where that seemed like, um, you know, you could you could justify at least in, in my eyes, you could justify either decision there. And you know, I tend to try to to assess those decisions. Um, think, thinking of what my first thought was, so taking the result out of it, because I think it's easy to, to look back and say, oh, you missed course, the field goal, gave him a short field, you should have gone for it. Now, you got to consider everything that he, I'm sure he was taking into account there, um, and let's think about that. So, A, you just got stopped on third and one. Literally, the, the play right before that, Carson got stuffed on yes. the third and one play. Yes. You've got 
a backup tackle uh, playing left, playing, excuse me, right guard versus the best defensive player in the NFL. And, you know, we all know that Jamarco Jones ended up having a pretty good game, but that was still early in that game. So I don't know what their confidence level was like uh, with him at that point. Um, there is just so many. And, and the other part of that, too, is that you made, you, you paid a ton of money to sign Jason Myers in free agency coming off his Pro Bowl season. So um, all three of those things combined, I, I, I did not fault him one bit for, uh, for kicking that field goal. It just seems it, everything that could have gone wrong there, um, it just was so easy to imagine that play not working out. Um, I know that Russell Wilson was on fire at that point, and, and you, you know, you, I, I mentioned that you paid Jason Myers a lot of money. You're also paying your quarterback a lot of money. Uh, but even then, just a lot of things that okay. could have gone wrong on okay. that play. All right, then we'll agree to disagree. Uh, Russell Wilson, I think, uh, if it hadn't started then, it's certainly started now has differentiated himself from previous seasons. He's looking more and more like a guy that might be in the MVP conversation. Just a brilliant night on Thursday and a brilliant start to the season, Brady, for Russell Wilson. Yeah, I, I was thinking back, trying to rack my brain of you know better games that Russell has played in his career. And I don't know if you could think of that many. It's hard to, to say which was the absolute best. Um, but, you know, maybe... That, I think that game is in the top four, maybe top five. I, I can't think of many games that he was better in. Um, just doing everything right, you know, extending plays, uh, getting out of a lot of trouble, especially all that you know trouble early with the trouble, the difficulty they were having uh, blocking the Rams front. Uh, the throw to Lockett in the end zone. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I thought that I was sure that he was throwing that ball away. It just seemed like yeah. um, it, it had no chance. So obviously, a, a tremendous catch by Lockett, but also. A brilliant throw by Russell running to his left. You, you know, you're seeing Patrick Mahomes do that. I don't know how many more guys uh, can contort their body and throw on the money like that while um, you know moving to their left. So, um, yeah, just a uh, just a brilliant start to him, and it it seems like he just keeps outdoing himself. You know, you could have said that that game in Pittsburgh that he had in week two um, was one of the best of his career, and then you know three weeks later, whatever it is, he has another one like that. You know, I would even contend that. Um, it wasn't like it was an easy night for him either. Yeah, it was a great performance, but what made it even better for me was he was under duress. There were many, many times where there was not great protection for him, and yet he was able to have that kind of night when uh, when the offensive line wasn't in, you know wasn't doing a great job in pass protection. Let's just call it what it was. Aaron Donald was a was a wrecker, was a wrecking machine in there, especially in the first half. Think of how easy it would be to to be affected by all that. You know, you sort of see the footsteps coming, and and maybe you bail from the pocket early because uh, you don't trust the pass protection. Um, yeah, so that that's another element to it is that he that was pretty tough going early in that game uh, before they kind of settled down and in. Um, you know, he was just making things happen all night long. There was maybe one throw in the end zone that he sort of put up for grabs. Um, but other than that, it was, you just, you're sort of, at this point, you're sort of nitpicking, right? You right, maybe find right. fault with one throw that he makes per game. Right. Uh, that's just the, the, the kind of uh, the way well, he's that locked speaks in, to right? It. Yeah, that speaks to his MVP candidacy. Try to uh, help us out with the offensive line. What do you know at this point about DJ Fluker? He was out of there with a hamstring injury. We know that Jamarco Jones went in there and did a nice job. Ethan Posick has been on the shelf. Uh, kind of uh, make sense of that as we get ready for the Cleveland game next Sunday. Yeah, that's an area uh, that, that is going to be of interest there just because, you know, Pete Carroll didn't really have any sort of, um, you know, firm update on 
how long Fluker might be out, but just the impression I get, the, the way that he talked about it, and also the fact that you know Fluker did not return to that game, um, that makes you wonder if that could be maybe at least a week or two the, with the way it sounds, you know, and obviously with the way Jamarco Jones played, I don't know if there would be a ton of, um, you know, certainly not going to rush him back before he's ready. So um, with Posick, it, it sounds like he's got a, a kind of a, I don't want to say serious, but a neck injury that has been pretty painful. I think that was the way that Carroll described it. Um, so that is one area of concern there. And, and obviously, um, you know, the fact that Posick, you don't really know what's going on with him in terms of availability. That makes it all the more important that Jamarco Jones played the way he did. You know, we, there's a lot of numbers out there. We had one from our uh, ESPN stats and information about pass block win rate. Yeah. 95% in that game Thursday night. And just for context, uh, if you looked over the first four weeks, all of those combined, 95% would have ranked, I think, in a tie for fifth best among all guards in the NFL. So gives you an idea of how well And he's, he's not even back. a guard, right? He's more of a tackle <laughs> than he is a guard. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and, and not only that, but he's, I think, been uh, more accustomed to the left side. He was a left tackle at Ohio wow. State. I don't think that he had ever played guard um, in a game. Uh, he, you know, he had sort of been working there in practice. But it goes from never having played guard in a game to being thrown into the fire against Aaron Donald. So, yeah. Uh, you really cannot say enough about about the job that he did. Fireplaces, barbecues, garage doors, all available at Fireside Home Solutions at FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Bringing you the Brady-Henderson chat. Now, I'll admit it that if you had asked me before Thursday's game whether I thought the Seahawks were going to be a serious contender all the way to the finish line for the NFC West, I would have said no. I would have more more projected that they would be in the conversation for the wild card than for the division. Now they've beaten the Rams in the first of two games here. They're four and one. What do you think that means? Does that win mean anything? Does it change anything in your mind? It does for me. I'm much more likely to say now, okay, I buy it. I'm buying that the Seahawks will be really in the mix right to the end for the NFC West title. Your thoughts, Brady? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I went into that game thinking that, you know, we were going to find out more about the Seahawks in this game than we have, you know, certainly than we did in the Arizona game, you know, against a, a winless Arizona team. Um, you know, I think we mentioned this too. Their first three wins came by, it came against teams that had combined entering this week uh, for only one win. So this was going to be kind of a barometer for them. And, you know, I think that, look, even if that kick had gone in, you still would have felt good about the Seahawks just in terms of, knowing that they are a team that can go toe-to-toe with the Rams. This is not like the end of that 2017 season where the Rams come in here and blow them out by 35 points. There's not the talent gap uh, that I think there was a couple years ago. So you would have felt good about their chances of you know hanging with them, even had they lost that game. But they also would have been in sort of an early hole, right. um, just having dropped that game against the Rams at home, knowing you got to play them in L.A. in December. Right. Um, so having having a, a, a game up on them, a game in hand against the Rams, that, that's pretty big for them. Uh, and you know they could be in first place. Once Jared Goff got started at the end of that second quarter, and if if you and I were going to have an argument over a beer on the disagreement of whether he should have gone for it on uh, in the second quarter, I would say, hey, I didn't want. Jared Goff and the Rams offense were totally out of sync that entire first half. The Seahawks defense had done just a great job on them, and they kind of got shocked back into rhythm on that last drive of the second quarter. So I wanted them to go for it just to keep the Rams off the field for the remainder of the second quarter. As it were, 
or as it was, Jared Goff went out and had a big second half. The Seahawks could do very little in pass defense, a lot of underneath stuff, a lot of very easy drives, a lot of Cooper Cup, a lot of eight yards this, eight yards that. How much of a problem, I know I've asked you this a lot, but now that you've seen five games, how problematic do you think it is, the Seahawks' pass defense, especially the underneath and intermediate passing game? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the secondary is still suspect. I think that's fair to say. And it's been, um, you know, there's been tackling issues. I, you know, there, there really wasn't, you know, it wasn't like in the Cincinnati game where you just had receivers running open down the field. So it, I don't think it was a matter of um, coverage bust so much as it was you just saw some guys get open. And I, and I think you kind of have to chalk some of that up to the fact that, you know, you've just, you've got a brilliant play call around the other side. And you've got some pretty good receivers. So, I think there's sort of an element there of you just got beat on a, a few times by uh, a pretty good operation, but we've also seen in that enough this season to think that, um, you know, that secondary is kind of suspect. And, you know, certainly we look at it in terms of the secondary, but there's also the, the pass rush there is very interconnected. And, um, you know, I think we had this conversation after the last game about, you know, is, is the pass rush a disappointment so far? I don't know if I'm going to say it's a disappointment, but it, it's close. certainly it's close. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's getting close there. I looked at the numbers after that Rams game. I think they entered this week something like 26th out of 32 teams in terms of generating pressure uh, on opposing quarterbacks. Certainly not what you expect when you look at all the firepower they have there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, we tend to look at it as just a secondary issue, but I think the pass rush well, there is, is it's all it's all connected. Well, it is connected, Brady, but I would I would contend that there's two different issues here. Yes, it's about the pass rush when he goes back there and they set back there and a more a longer developing play, but there's the short passing game where the pass rush is is immaterial, right? Yeah, no, certainly. And and some of that, you know, that is just a, I think a product of the way Pete Carroll runs his defense. They are always not always, but a lot of times they are going to concede those shorter throws. Right. Uh just because they figure that is the lesser of two evils with the other one being uh, that you get beat deep. And so when you play defense like that, it, it makes it all the more important that you tackle those guys for no gain. And, and I think that's been one of their problems. It's just, um, you know, you, you, you have to tackle well when you play defense like that, and they have not done that. Okay, and so that brings us to Lock and Fora's report on Sunday. See what I just did there? Lock and Fora on Sunday reported that the Seahawks are one of the most active teams before the trading deadline, I mean that's not surprise because Schneider is always aggressive. That they're working right. the they're working the phone lines on on player acquisition. What position? I mean, if it's not Jalen Ramsey, what position do you think they're trying to address here in Seattle? You know, I could see maybe a, an extra offensive lineman. Um, okay. You know, certainly the the Fluker situation and Posick as well that we mentioned. Um, you know, that might play into that. I know that they. I had heard just through the the NFL grapevine that they were. Um, looking to potentially add somebody there uh, right around cutdown day, that they were involved in some discussions there okay. that, that didn't end up happening. I think they ended up adding a couple guys to their practice squad. So um, offensive line is really one of the positions that comes to mind just because I don't know where else it would be. Um, you know, cornerback is uh, – I'm not totally sold on the depth they have at cornerback there, um, but we've also seen that it, it can be kind of hard for, for veteran players – uh, to come in here and pick up that that you know pick up basically what they do at cornerback and you know that's been the case even with guys they signed in free agency now you're talking about a guy coming in uh, in the middle of the season so um, those two positions I mean defensive tackle is another area where they're they're kind of thin they really only have two true defensive tackles on their roster 
uh, and Puna Ford and Al Woods. But then again, they're going to get Jaron Reed back here in a week. So um, if you had to ask me what position, my guess would be offensive line. But, you know, like you said, this is, they're always in all those conversations. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they don't get any trades done. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks Insider, brought to you by Fireside Home Solutions. Football season is fireplace season. Uh, Blair and Collier, healthy scratches. Any comments on that? Yeah, I, I think that uh, in both cases, it's a matter of both of those guys really, really being set back by all the time that they missed. Um, with Collier, obviously, it was the ankle injury that kept him out pretty much all of the preseason and into week one. Uh, Blair had, I think, a hamstring injury, then a back injury. So you combine that with the fact that those are two positions uh, right now where the Seahawks are pretty deep at. You know, I mentioned the, how they don't really have very many defensive tackles. They're they're stocked with defensive ends right now. Um, and also, you know, with safety, you can sort of – I know that I put this out there on Twitter after we saw both of those guys be healthy scratches Thursday night, uh, mentioning the, the depth at safety. And, look, you can, you can argue that how good they are at safety, but the bottom line is they think they have three starting caliber players there right now uh, in McDougal, Tedder Thompson, and uh, Lano Hill. So uh, it's a combination of the time that they missed and I think just the fact that they're, they're pretty well set at those two positions. Okay. I'm going to give you a shot. Uh, people will know that at the time of this recording, we don't know what's going to happen between Cleveland and San Francisco on Monday night. But since you picked the Rams-Seahawks game right, I might as well let you let you take a swing at the Cleveland Browns-Seahawks game at 10 a.m. in Cleveland. I think that could be a tough game for the Seahawks. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's you've got a pretty talented team over there with a lot of playmakers. Um, if you're going to ask me at the time of recording, you know, coming off the way that they played against the Rams, I'm I'm going to say that that that's a win for them. Um, wow. I don't know what the BHI would be on that. It certainly wouldn't be as high as, as the BHI on Greg Zerline making that 44-yard field goal. Yeah. Uh, but but I'll pick the Seahawks. You know, remember it's it's I know the uh, Browns are going to be playing at home, uh, but that's going to be a short week for them because they're playing on Monday night, whereas the Seahawks have uh, you know sort of that mini buy after the Thursday night game. Okay. Brady Henderson, ESPN, ESPN.com, Seahawks Insider. Make sure you follow him on Twitter all week long. He has all of the information because he's out there every single day. Brady, thank you very much. It's great to have you back, and we'll talk to you next week at this time. All right, you got it. Thanks, Mitch. Brady Henderson, ESPN, ESPN.com, and Mitch Unfiltered, Seahawks Insider, with a little look back to Thursday night. What a great night it was at CenturyLink Field, and a look ahead to the Browns in the remainder of the season as the Seahawks are now unofficially rolling at four and one as a thank you to loyal customers daniels broiler has launched a new rewards program that can easily be managed from its own app here's what you do just download the app at apple or google play search daniels broiler you'll find it no problem and then join daniels new rewards program for free when you download the app, you can register to receive 100 free reward points. Every $500 you then spend, Daniel's members receive a $20 reward. Every $2,500 spent, they receive $20 prime rewards in addition to the normal rewards that you get. To thank and reward every loyal Daniel's guest, sign up today at Apple or Google, locally owned by the Schwartz family, South Lake Union, Leshine Marina, Bellevue Place, and now the new downtown Hyatt Regency where we're doing a November the 11th Seahawks showing for the Monday night football game against the 49ers. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Interesting 
week in the never-ending debate of whether or not to allow student-athletes the ability to be compensated for their likeness and to play, for that matter. Dan Murphy, an ESPN writer, terrific writer, by the way, who concentrates on the Big Ten, also the co-author of an upcoming book about Larry Nasser and the largest sex abuse scandal in American sports history, is on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Dan, thanks for joining us. Lots of people, I think, in my boat who are extremely interested in this issue but don't have a true grasp, at least I don't, on state proposals versus national legislation and then how much power ultimately the NCAA has to just fold its arms and say no and look the other way. Maybe you can kind of give us a kind of a 101, a a lesson on what happened in California, what's happening in Ohio, and what's happening nationally to this issue. Sure. Thanks for having me. And it is there's a lot going on, a lot of different moving parts, and some of it is intentionally confusing, I think, to try to make people uh, have a hard time understanding what's happening. But um, really for the past 10, almost 20 years, there's been a group of people who have been trying to chip away at the NCAA's amateurism rules and find ways to get a little bit more in the pockets of college players. And this law that passed in California just last week is probably the most significant step to date in that fight. And they basically passed a law that will go into effect in 2023. So we've still got three years and change before that would make a big change. But what it does is it forces the NCAA's hand. The law in California would allow players who who play at schools in California to make money from endorsement deals, not directly from schools, but they could make money from apparel companies or autograph signings or by teaching swim lessons, you know, anything from a few bucks here and there to the humongous contracts you might get for an NBA draft pick type of kid who's playing at UCLA or USC. Um, And part of the strategy in passing that bill is California was hoping that they'd get many more states to jump on board or even some federal laws passed that would change laws, not just in California, but nationally. And we've seen that happen already. There's more than a dozen states that have expressed some interest in doing something similar. Some of them already have uh, bills proposed that will go through the legislation at some point in the next couple of years. Florida, for instance, is attempting to get one passed that might go into effect as soon as this next summer, which would dramatically change the timeline. Uh, and at the same time, the NCAA has figured out that it it needs to move at this point. I think the leaders of the NCAA have finally reached the point where they realize that what they are doing currently isn't going to last. They need to change somewhat. And really what's left to decide is how much they're going to have to change and how much control they're going to be able to maintain yeah. over regulating a system where players will be able to make some type of money, perhaps, out of their name, image, and likeness. Uh, Dan Murphy is our guest. So let me ask you some follow-up questions on the California legislation, and then we'll move towards what uh, the U.S. rep in Ohio, the former Ohio State Buckeye, is doing, and, and the, the piece that's already in uh, in Congress, the national legislation, I think, from the state of North Carolina. But a couple of follow-up questions on the California one. First of all, all right, so California says it now is prohibiting colleges from penalizing kids if they make money in endorsements or from the use of their likeness. What's to stop the NCAA if they want to, to say, okay, you guys can do that, but we're going to automatically make those schools ineligible for the final four and for the national college football playoff and for bowl games, that type of thing. The only thing stopping them is that California is the fifth largest economy in the world. And that's not really something that a big national organization is probably all that interested in doing. Um, There's that argument. There's also, 
um, some folks who believe that California, that if the NCAA were to ban California schools for following a state law, that that would violate some antitrust rules. And um, what would end up happening if we get to the point where 2023 comes around and a California school breaks that rule or has to make a decision, it will likely end up in front of a judge somewhere in federal court who will have to decide um, whose view of this new law is correct. Okay. And then the other question, Dan, would be the obvious one is, okay, if, if these players can now make money on their likeness, what's to stop the booster at USC, the booster at UCLA, the booster at Stanford for paying a player out of whack, crazy money to do very little and, you know, skirt the system and make it obviously very beneficial to come to USC or UCLA or Stanford? The way the California law is written, nothing would stop that. And in fact, the folks that are the biggest proponents of it would argue, well, yeah, that probably is going to happen, and that's great. If someone's willing to pay you X amount of dollars, you are worth X amount of dollars, and that's how the free market economy and capitalism works. So while it won't be directly paying for you, you know, it's, it might not be worth someone to pay $100,000 just to have Zion Williamson on a billboard for their local car dealership, but you might end up seeing something like that because they decide that's what the player's worth is. And then former wide receiver of the Ohio State Buckeyes and U.S. Representative Anthony Gonzalez, he responds by proposing some national legislation to allow athletes to earn endorsement dollars. How does what he wants to do differ from what they're doing in California? This will be interesting. His exact bill has not yet been introduced. I talked to him a little bit last week, and he's actually waiting. The other shoe that's left to drop here is at the end of October – the NCAA is going to get together. They've assembled a group that's made up of athletic directors and some conference commissioners and some university presidents that are looking at this issue and trying to decide the best way for the NCAA to move forward. So that group is actually led by Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith. Uh, He'll give some recommendations to the leadership of the NCAA at the end of the month on how they best can move forward and still try to keep some control in, in work through some of the complexities because this is a complex issue whether no matter where you fall on whether players deserve a little bit more money or not there are a lot of small details and nuances to try to figure out to make it feasible and make it work for everybody but once that passes uh gonzalez who played at ohio state was there when gene smith was starting as the athletic director is planning on introducing some legislation and what he wants to do is open things up so players can make money from their name, image, and likeness, but at the same time put some guardrails was the term he used in there so that they're able to regulate things and weed out the potential hangers-on, people that might try to take advantage of athletes once that system opens up in order to make money from their own purposes. Um, He is probably a friendly figure in the eyes of the NCAA. The NCAA's two biggest problems right now are, one, trying to maintain as much control as they can, and two, not wanting to deal with 50 states making 50 different laws and trying to navigate all of those. So if they can get one national rule and can get a little bit of say in exactly what that rule looks like, that might be the best case scenario for them. Okay. And that involves them moving and not being so obstinate on the issue. Uh, I guess this is kind of more of a personal opinion question. What do you think ultimately the NCAA will do? You've already said you think that they'll move because they've now got no other choice, but to at least show some level of compromise, what do you expect the NCAA's level of compromise? Define that for me. What do you think it's going to be? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's very hard to predict what the NCAA is ever going to do, right? But but they have 
have moved to a point where I think they realize they need to make a national rule and they need to give some ground if they're going to hold it all. So I think the main thing that they've wanted all along, and you can look back at a bunch of the civil lawsuits that they've been involved in over the past decade, too, is whatever players make in compensation, they want it in some way to be tied back to the educational experience. So I wouldn't be surprised if they allow some stuff to happen, some players to sign up with endorsements as long as there's some kind of clearinghouse system where the NCAA can approve of these deals. Then maybe you see some type of a cap on how much money can be made off of these deals if they want to try to avoid one of the problems you brought up earlier with boosters paying, you know, who knows how much money for things that maybe that's not exactly what they're paying for, right? Um, and they also want to try to find some way that maybe it's there's attached to an academic incentive in some way. So exactly how that shakes out and what that looks like, I'm not sure that anybody, even Gene Smith, their folks at the NCAA, really know exactly what they want quite yet. But I would imagine that those things will all be elements that they're trying to work into some type of a compromise that they'll propose here in the coming months. Okay, Dan, so you've discussed what happened in California last week. You've discussed a little bit about what's on the mind of Anthony Gonzalez in the state of Ohio, but what we haven't, and the NCAA, what they may or may not do, what we haven't talked about is the already federal legislation that seems to be making its way through Congress as we speak that prohibits schools from standing in the way of endorsement money. How, how does that play into all of this, and what's the difference in that legislation? Sure, that one is from a congressman named uh, Mark Walker, who's down in North Carolina. And he introduced this a while back and has been among the, the first voices on the federal level to try to change something. His, his solution was kind of clever in that, you know, the NCAA is a nonprofit, and so they get tax-exempt status as that. And so he wanted to rewrite the federal tax code so that any nonprofit organization would have to allow their um, labor to have the rights to their name, image, and likeness. Uh, which would effectively force the NCAA to decide, do we want the tax breaks or do we want the players to be able to make money from endorsements? And, you know, I know that he and Gonzalez have not talked in detail, um, but I think that they're both sort of aiming in the right direction. And my guess would be Walker's camp is interested in a little bit more of a, a free unrestricted market than what Gonzalez right now is thinking he might go in the direction of, but it'll be interesting to see if those groups and others in Congress end up working together and can put together one bill that would lead to a compromise. Again, that's probably something that will get hashed out in the next two or three months. This is a a pretty quick deadline, right? A lot of people are talking about the California bill in 2023 going into effect, but I I think that the folks at the NCAA and on the national level both realize that they need to move much faster than that in order to get things done in a way that they want to. Dan, putting an end to this uh, to this segment, I want to ask you about your book that's coming up in January, coming out in January before we finish. But be- before we do that, uh, look, I don't know. I haven't taken a poll, but my guess, just my gut is that most college sports fans like me share my opinion. Most, not all, but most, which is, yeah, we got to find a way to get some of these guys and gals paid compensated for you know in a, in a business that's generating billions and billions of dollars but at the same time we're all fearful fearful at least I am that they're going to come up with a plan that allows endorsement monies to happen and then the playing field is not going to be even there's going to be school there are going to be schools that have much more you know power financial power and all of a sudden the great game of college football is going to really involve four or five schools that get the players more than the other schools because they have 
deeper pockets. And that and that's what I think everybody is worried about. Is there ever going to be a way to get them paid but not fall into that trap, do you think? Well, I, I think we've already fallen into that trap. You could argue that you know the past three national championships have featured the same two teams, yeah, and there's yeah. probably five or six teams right now that have a legitimate chance to compete for a national championship. I think there is some worry about Will the, the haves and the have-nots, will that gap widen even further into a, a chasm that just makes it insurmountable? Um, the other thing you could have, which would be interesting, is that if you have some smaller school that has one major mega donor who decides he wants to throw a whole bunch of money behind the, his team somewhere in North Dakota or Utah or you know some South Carolina or whatever it might be, some smaller school, uh, he can single-handedly kind of change the shape of a, a program, an athletic program if, if this new law goes into effect. Right. Dan Murphy, the ESPN writer who does concentrate on the Big Ten, but also co-authored an upcoming book, what in January I think it's coming out, on Larry Nasser and this sex abuse scandal involving uh, U.S. Olympic athletes, gymnasts. The book, uh, give us a little thought on the book, Dan, if you don't mind. The book is, uh, as I understand it, is as much about the leaders and organizations who could have stepped up and instead turned their backs and ignored what was going on in order to protect their individual best interests, correct? Yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate you mentioning it. Um, and it is, it's not only about the folks that, that dropped the ball and enabled some of that abuse for, for 20 or 25 years for Larry Nassar, but, but also the people that, and the, the group effort it took to actually stop him eventually. There was, uh, it was not inevitable that he would end up in jail and that the amount of fallout that we've seen across the country over the past couple of years was going to happen. And so myself and, and John Barr, my co-author, have been covering the story for three-plus years at this point, spend about a year or so going back and talking to a lot of the people who made that happen and the things that that they had to do and there were some lucky breaks and there was some persistence and there was a lot of sacrifice that went into it from both some of the women who spoke up that I think uh, a good part of America has gotten to know through their advocacy as well as some people in law enforcement and just some, some lucky breaks that have happened along the way so we wanted to write something that bring that to light and hopefully people can learn a few lessons uh, by what went wrong and then what it took to to correct that eventually. Yeah. When's the book out, Dan? January. The middle of January will be the, the two-year anniversary of those sentencing hearings when a lot of people okay. started paying attention to what was happening with Nassar and, and everybody else at USA Gymnastics and Michigan State that helped him get away with this. Yeah. Uh, we'll be coming up on January 15th and our, our book will be about out right around the same time. Well, I hope you'll come back and, and join us on the podcast and talk a, a lot more in depth about the book. We appreciate your work, not only on that, but on the uh, on the NCAA pay-for-play topic. It's, it's one that's not going away anytime soon, and maybe we're going to have some drastic changes here uh, coming very, very shortly. Follow Dan uh, on Twitter. What's your what's your uh, username on Twitter? Dan Murphy ESPN. Nice and simple. Okay, Dan Murphy ESPN. Hey, Dan, thanks for being with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. ESPN writer Dan Murphy just seems like a matter of time now before some legislation is introduced and the NCAA backs off and allows for athletes to make some extra money on the side, whether it's through endorsements or through public speaking or autograph signings. We'll have to kind of wait and see. Executive producer of Mitch Unfiltered, Steve Dion, wanted to save money every month through his mortgage on his home. And you know what he did? He called Jordan Flowers in the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Yeah, I gave uh, Jordan a buzz in uh, late July. Um, was interested to get a uh, quote on a refi. Um, just 
the way the market has been with with interest rates dropping as they have kind of tailored a, a mortgage around my preferences one of the main parts that was appealing was the fact that he was able to cut out my mortgage insurance uh, he bought that out completely um, really consolidated the loan into one clean monthly payment amortized over a shorter time horizon and at a lower rate, really easy process. You know, working with Jordan and Christina there, not not bad for a coog. You know, I I was uh, hesitant to put my uh, put my dollars and cents into uh, the hands of a, a Wazoo grad, but you know, it all turned out t- turned out well th- thus far. From beginning to end, Steve, how long did it take? It took about a month total. How long was the first? phone conversation until you determine what you could save per month it's about a 15 minute call when you include the mortgage insurance how much less are you paying per month now on a percentage basis thanks to the refi with the kirkland office of guild mortgage i'm paying about eight to ten percent less a month on top of that uh, we'll be paying for five less years so it's kind of a win-win on both both sides so my line on the podcast that you're crazy not to call the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage with the low interest rates at the moment just to find out what you could be saving in a refinance is on point. Well, it, it's valid unless you want to spend more money every month. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> oh, and Mitch, one last thing. Where's my tumbler? <laughs> there it is. Stop standing on the sidelines. Guild Mortgage and the Kirkland office at 425-250-3150. You could start saving big time today. Unfiltered. We, the jury, find unanimously that the defendant did not cause the death of Botham John while under the immediate influence of sudden passion arising from an adequate cause and assess the defendant's punishment at 10 years imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Well, it's been a story that has captured, obviously, the nation's attention, the world's attention for that matter. Let's go down to Dallas. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, and what are the chances? Lavendrick Smith, who has done just an incredible job of reporting on the Amber Geiger story for the Dallas Morning News. Who'd have thought, Lavendrick, that I'd be talking to a Pacific Northwest guy, a University of Washington product with a 425 area code? You dogs are everywhere, aren't you? Go Huskies. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, an incredible story that everybody's paying a lot of attention to. I'm going to go against what I was taught in broadcast journalism class a million years ago, Lavendrick, and go ahead and assume that almost everyone in our audience is at least familiar with the nuts and bolts of the Amber Geiger story. So what I thought we would do is we would begin with what the two sides in the trial actually agreed upon which wasn't very much, as I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So, so let me see if I've got this. And, and you tell me if, I, if there's more that they agreed upon or less. To September mm-hmm. 2018, off-duty police officer, female, white, walks into an mm-hmm. apartment unit that is not hers, upstairs from her unit. Door is open. She finds a 26-year-old man, black man, watching TV on the couch. They exchange mm-hmm. some words. He stands up. She opens fires. He dies. Is there anything beyond those details that the two sides actually agreed upon before, after, during, why, motivation, and all that? 
Well, there's a little bit different there. There were, in court, there was kind of a um, disagreement about where he was. Um, prosecutors tried um, several times to make it seem as if he was getting off of the couch when this happened. He was he had a bowl of ice cream. In fact, he had just had an incident where. Um, his tonsils were removed and it was his first opportunity to have um, solid food and ice cream was what he was trying to have that night. Um, and so prosecutors were trying to say that he was getting off the couch when she shot him. And then um, her attorneys were trying to say that, um, you know, she, he was about 13, 15 feet away from her, um, had been standing up and was advancing toward her. So they had kind of a discrepancy there, but you know, other than that, it was just kind of, it's, it, I can't really, really describe this as a case. You've, I've never seen anything like that, if I, if I could put it that way. You, you know, I need help. Initially, I was of the opinion that the prosecution was not contesting that she was confused and legitimately thought that she was in her own apartment. And then I saw during the trial where they introduced evidence that there were a handful of indicators like the welcome mat, Lavendrick, and, and others that should have alerted her that she was in the wrong place. So I started to get the opinion or impression that they were they were going down the road of she knew where she was. She knew she was in the wrong apartment. What, what, what did those indicators mean? What were they trying to suggest? Just that she wasn't paying attention? She was just not being careful? Is that right? Essentially, they... Um and it was interesting to see how each side kind of flipped both of those things together. So um, the defense was trying to say that those indicators weren't prevalent while, um, you know, certain things like the door, different doormats and stuff outside the door, they were trying to say that wasn't as prevalent as the uh, prosecution was trying to say, well, as, um, the, you know, um, the state's attorneys were saying, basically, as a trained cop, you know, a five-year veteran, she should be trained to have those kind of observational skills that would have alerted her to the fact that she was on a different floor. Um, and so that's kind of a lo- that's kind of a long way that was going. They were they they never contested that that she believed that she didn't believe that she was in the wrong apartment. They kind of just felt that at some point in time she should have recognized whether if she was on um, while she's working walking down the hallway she should have noticed that while she was standing on you know his doormat that she does not have she should have noticed that um, while the prosecution was or while the defense was basically saying she was working on autopilot. By by the time she got to her door. I see. So the picture that the prosecution paints of her uh, is, Lavendrick, a, a woman distracted by a relationship she was having with a co-worker, texts mm-hmm. before she entered the apartment, and, and what she didn't do. Maybe you can get into what the prosecution said she did wrong all the way from the from the beginning when she shot him and how she shot him to what she didn't do in terms of her training once he was down and shot. Yeah. So, you know, essentially we, we, as we already said, you know, they thought that she, she started off wrong, obviously by going to the wrong floor and the wrong door. Um, what ended up happening was after the shooting, the prosecution was saying that there were different parts where she was following her training and parts where she wasn't. Um, police, for example, are trained. Um, she she shot him how police are trained to shoot. Um, I, really, I believe the phrase is called a double tap. is when you shoot twice um, and center mass right in the heart. And what that does is it increases the lethality of the shot, which is what they got her to admit in court was that she intended to kill who was ever behind the door. Um, and they said that that was... Um, essentially her following police training, but that she didn't follow police training by going into the apartment from the beginning because if she thought somebody was in there as a burglar, that she, as a cop, should not be going into what is considered an active burglar situation. And then um, after the shooting, they 
really hit home with um, at least the prosecution tried to make it seem as if she didn't offer much help or support. Other officers had, when they arrived to the scene, you know, immediately began CPR for her or CPR for both of them, John, and trying to um, give him any kind of aid that they could. Whereas, you know, she went into the hallway as, but her defense says she was supposed to go to the hallway, but she went to the hallway. Um, and essentially what um, prosecution was trying to say is that she didn't provide much help for him in his dying moments. And she not only didn't provide much help for him she was texting the co-worker was she not yeah at that point yeah she was at that moment she was um in the hallway or during during the 911 call she was texting the co-worker and um you know reaching out to him his name is martin rivera asking him you know to get back here saying i you know effed up um all this was going on while she was on the phone with, um, you know, dispatch and calling for, um, you know, help for both and John. But um, the way the prosecution made it seem was as if she didn't care for his, uh, for, um, you know, the man she had just shot. What would have been the correct, was the defense contending that she did exactly what she was trained to do? I thought I read somewhere where there was a de-escalation training that she even had taken uh, within the last year on different ways to go about this without shooting twice into the heart. They, they, they did bring up the escalation training. Um, the attorney, the prosecution did, but, um, you know, Amber Geiger responded basically saying, you know, I've taken this class before, but it was such a long time ago that I don't necessarily recall everything. Um, but the defense on their part, on their end, when it came to, you know, the training and whatnot, they, they were arguing that, um, you know, as an off-duty cop, particularly as, you know, a woman going back to her home that she lives at alone, you know, she's not thinking about that kind of training. She's not thinking of um, going to her home and viewing someone in her home that she thinks is a burglar. Um, she's not viewing that the same way she would if she was an on, on duty and responding to a burglary call. And so um, basically they weren't, they, they, they didn't, her, her, her side didn't, I don't want to say, I don't want to say they disregarded the training aspect, but they just wanted to essentially argue that, you know, she wasn't on duty. And so therefore some of those things, how she might respond to, um, to a to this kind of situation is not how she would respond if she was taken as a cop. The prosecution, Levendrick, uh, asked for 28 years. She got mm. 10 eligible for parole and five because of something called a, some sort of a special provision that allowed for a lighter sentencing. Can you explain that to us? Well, she, she didn't get that. I believe you're trying to say, um, God, what is it called? Sudden passion. Um, she didn't get that. The jury didn't decide that. And what would have happened for that if they had granted it is that it would have changed, um, essentially would have changed the um, the charge into a second degree felony, which would have made the sentencing be somewhere between um, two, to, uh, two to 20 years. As it stands now, she was range of five to 99 years or life. I'm actually writing the day about that sentence. Um, it has really, um, a lot of people have been had a negative reaction to that sentence. Um, and I'm writing about it right now. We don't know what it was that made the jury do that. It's kind of in line also with the recent indictments and convictions we've had of officers in Dallas County where, um, they they become convicted and they've gotten they've gotten ten years or fifteen years so it's kind of along the lines of those same sentences even though they're different juries doing it but it hasn't done much to um, kind of appease the people who wanted a lengthier sentence. Lavendrick Smith of the Dallas Morning News is nice enough to be with us on this incredible Amber Geiger story. So was anybody happy with the sentencing, the verdict, and the sentencing of ten years? five uh, eligible for parole in five years. Was anybody happy with that? I want to say that the family, for, well, how do I put this? I want to say the family and community, were, they were happy with the conviction. A conviction and sentence, they're two different things, obviously, but they were very happy with the conviction. Um, 
you know, nationwide, you have all these calls from people who are, they, they try to raise the idea that, you know, it's very rare to get an officer convicted. It's hard to get an officer indicted. So to have, um, you know, in Dallas County, three recent officers be convicted for murder charges, that's still a big deal for people. But there is some dejection right now, as I was saying earlier, just about the sentence. Um, a lot of people wanted longer. The prosecution obviously asked for 28 years, um, which is what a, what both of them would have been t- um, on Sunday, which, which, which was his 28th birthday. So it's, it's kind of like a kind of a mixed, <laughs> a mixed uh, bit of emotions right now. Um, to say the least. We'll talk about the little brother's statement and hug in a moment, which uh, words can't even describe. But before I get there and before the community, the African-American community in Dallas and around the country saw what the little brother said and did before that, what was the Hmm. reaction to the verdict, the sentencing? Maybe you can start because you're in in the Dallas community. Well, as I said, locally, the verdict was... um you know, it was welcome. I mean, it, it was, it was, people were happy. People related to that verdict. Um, and it's, it's almost night and day, honestly, the response that you saw um, on, was it Tuesday? when they, I'm losing track of time. Okay. But the, day, the day of the verdict, there was, there was like night and day between how that court, um, the hallway in, that, in front of the courtroom reacted toward hearing murder um, versus the very next day when they got the sentence, you kind of heard groans. I remember I tweeted out immediately the 10, the, the, the 10 year sentence and you could, the moment you heard the judge say 10 years, immediately you just heard groans and just ejection and people came out of the um, hallway and right. they were upset. There were some protests last night. <laughs> Somebody got arrested. It was, um, people are disappointed. And also a, a lot, a big case, a big point of the disappointment comes from the fact that there was so much uncovered um, about the um, how law enforcement handled this case from the beginning. And so it kind of um, peeled back some mistrust that people have in um, the police department and, kind of open up a new can of worms there. So there's a lot going on here that has made um, open up wounds, I guess I would say, for the community. Lavendrick, you talk about opening up a can of worms. The racially motivated texts and social Mm. media posts of Amber Geiger that were unveiled, I'm assuming, during the sentencing phase, were were they not a part of the trial itself? Were they not a part of the prosecution's presentation? Did they not make this a black and white thing? And and if they were not a part, if those texts and posts were not a part of it, why were they not a part of the trial? Well, initially they wanted, um, how do I say this? And I don't want to say initially the prosecution wanted it to be, but there was a moment in time where um, during it, when Amber Gary got, got on the stand last Friday and she testified um, and she told the jury essentially that, you know, she's always wanted to be a cop and she wanted to be a cop so that she can, um, you know, help others. That's why she wanted to be a police officer. But um, once the prosecution heard that and, and during cross-examination, that's when they tried raising that, um, a, a, those text messages and those posts initially. Um, but the moment they said anything, the um, defense immediately objected and um, the judge did not allow that to be put into evidence. Then I think um, their their issue at the moment was that I I want to say it was because they thought it would be too prejudicial to hear have the jury hear that before, um, you know, deciding if she was either innocent or guilty. Um, but of course, in the punishment phase, all that stuff is kind of, you know, all bets are off for that, and they want they 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 wanted to show what they believe to be her true character and give the defense an opportunity to, um, you know, counteract that with their witnesses. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't allowed. It was struck. Yeah. It was it was struck. It wasn't allowed in the original trial, but it was presented during the sentencing phase 
uh, yeah. these 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 texts that she sent to coworkers and dog owners and and, and all the all yeah. the rest. The, the, then Levendrick, the little brother, um, the 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 little brother of the deceased, takes the stand. I know that a lot of family members talked after the sentencing. Uh, I, I'm assuming that there are some people in our audience that don't know what happened. Can you put into words what happened when the little brother? Um, made his presentation and what happened after that? Yeah. So essentially, um, you know, after each, um, in, in a trial, when someone is convicted and after the sentencing portion, there's usually, um, what they call, what they call victim impact statements where the family members can get up on the stand and, you know, talk directly to the person in this case, Amber Geiger, um, who, you know, killed their relative and, you know, both of John's family has just had so much, you know, grace and class throughout this entire past year about this um, uh, since this has happened. And what ended up happening is that his um, younger brother, Brent, got up on the stand and, you know, he looked at Amber Geiger and said, hey, I, you know, if you're truly sorry, you know, I, I, you know, she just forgave her, you know, and said, you know, I want you to give your life to Christ. And then eventually asked the judge if he can hug her. Um, The judge allowed that and he walked up and, we have just this beautiful photo of those two hugging. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's just, it, it's, it's probably become like the defining picture, I, I guess, out of this trial, um, or at least one of them. You know, it was just a really just emotional moment. Um, my coworkers, uh, my colleagues, Jennifer Emily and Tom Fox, um, who are the main reporters and photographer from this story, they were in the courtroom and they saw this happen and heard what was said between just people in the courtroom and uh, there wasn't a dry eye in there. Didn't he say that he was hoping that she wouldn't have to go to jail or something like that? Yeah, that was a part of him saying that, um, you know, he forgave her and just saying that if he basically had it his way, that she wouldn't, you know, had to serve time anytime. Um, And, you know, he's an 18 year old man who just that was that was his way of forgiving her but but that but that came after the attorney representing the family and the rest of the family were outraged over the the small amount of time that she got in terms of the sentencing that that couldn't have been was that a popular comment was his presentation and his hug was that was that well received within his family or could you not tell as that was going on i couldn't tell specifically i mean after after that happened we had um i was never in the courtroom for that i didn't actually see it happen live but because i was in the um waiting for attorneys and whoever was going to speak to us to come out and you know kind of give a press conference but we did hear from the mother um directly after i don't say directly after but we did hear from her after that um she didn't highlight that but the same amount of grace um was extended but she did push it further um and this is kind of another thing that i want to point out too is that a lot of people I mean, there, there's kind of a split reaction to how that hug is played out. On one hand, you have people who are very, you know, they see it as a very great shining act of forgiveness um, and grace and everything. But I got, you know, I'm just to be honest, I'm a black man and I've seen people within my community have um, kind of a, not only say negative reaction to it, but they just want to make sure that people understand that that hug is not going to bring both of them back and it shouldn't. You know, his his forgiveness is great to them, but they don't want that to be the thing that distracts people from continuing to push forward to make sure an incident like this doesn't happen again. And you don't have an, another 18 year old man forgiving, you know, his brother's killer on the stand again. That's, but do, but, that's do, but, but Lavendrick does the hug and I get that and I appreciate that. But does the hug and I don't know the answer to this question, does the hug at least smooth over the reaction by the African-American community to the light? the seemingly light sentence does it does it at least settle things down from that standpoint i wouldn't say i wouldn't say that i think um 
they, they, they're able to look at it in a vacuum and say that is Botham's spirit, and that's how Botham would feel. That's how his that's you know, that's example. That's an example of his family and the grace of his family. But they're also able to separate the two and say, you know, but there's still stuff to be done. Is kind of how they're viewing it. And I wouldn't say that it necessarily makes it easier because I feel like a lot of people also feel like that is being kind of overshadowing something like that his mom said, like his mom yesterday after, you know, after this happened, made remarks that um, we haven't really seen often, you know, played on the TV ways, which is just that she called for action and change within, um, you know, the Dallas Police Department and Dallas Police Association and um, the Department of Public Safety just calling for change and they don't want that 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 message to get lost in the shuffle of what is also a beautiful moment in this hug. And what's the answer from that call? What's the answer by the Dallas Police Department? Will there be change? So our police chief held um, held a um, press conference, you know, shortly after this um, sentencing, after the trial was over, and once the gag orders and all this stuff was lifted, and you know, our chief basically said that you know she's going to look at some of the things, the issues that were raised, um, the president of the Dallas police association, um, he was, um, he had a moment in, in this trial that was uncovered about him, you know, trying to get Amber Geiger out of the police car that she was supposed to be isolated in, um, after she, after, after she shot both and John. And then we had, um, you know, another issue was raised about, the, um, her part, uh, her partner, Mark Rivera, who she had the, um, you know, that affair with. Yeah. He had a previous history of um, where he fatally shot another man um, years ago, and now people are calling for him to resign. People are calling for a renewed investigation. So in those text messages, all that kind of stuff, the police chief said, you know, that will be reviewed in internal affairs and whatever comes out of that is what's going to come out of that. But she also wanted to um, smooth things over, I guess, and say that, you know, what people saw in this trial Essentially, she was saying what people saw in this trial aren't, isn't um, representative of the police department as a whole. Lavendrick Smith, you've done a great job. I've been reading a lot of your work, and I know that I'm finishing up, and I'm going to do something I probably shouldn't do, and that's revert back to a question that I didn't ask that I'm, I'm, mm. I'm curious about. It's probably the worst way to end it. But I, I want to go back to the moment that she walked to the doors, saw the man on the couch eating the ice cream and watching TV. However long it took between that that moment and the the firing of the shots, do we know what was said? What 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 did he say? Did he say you're in the wrong apartment, ma'am? This is this is this is apartment five twelve or what? You know, did she? What what were the words that were exchanged? What did he say to her before she opened fire? Well, essentially, here's what what happened, um, and this is kind of how the prosecution was able to secure this um, conviction is that. In order to prove murder, they had to prove intent. And the way this played out is Amber Geiger testified this way too: is that when she got to the door and she pushed pushed her key into the um, you know the keyhole and the door opened up, there was a malfunction by the way with his door that uh, that made this door already open. Um, she testified that she heard someone in this apartment that she thought was hers. Um, immediately thought it was a burglar, and so when she came into the apartment, prosecutors argued that she had the intent to kill whoever was inside this apartment. Um, and so she says that she opened the door, had her gun, you know, her gun was drawn and she was standing on the threshold of the door and saw what she said was a silhouette, but it was him, um, standing in the corner. And she said that she, um, you know, she yelled, show me your hands, show me your hands, show me your hands. And he was, she said that he approached her just yelling, Hey, Hey, Hey. Um, and then she shot and that's how, um, it was played out. That's how we were told, or that's how she testified in court that it happened. 
So no words. He never got the opportunity to say, hey, you're in the wrong apartment or, hey, this is my apartment. Nothing like that. Nothing in that vein. Nothing along those lines. What a senseless tragedy. What a terrible, terrible tragedy. Lavendrick Smith, the Dallas Morning News. If you haven't read a lot of the work that the Dallas Morning News has done this story, it's, it's available. It's online. He's done great. You've made the University of Washington proud. You've made home. Thank you. You've made. <laughs> you've uh, represented the four two five. Very very proud, and it's terrific to have you on on the podcast. Thanks for sharing so much time with us. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you down the line. Thank you, Lavendrick. No worries. I appreciate you. That's the voice of Lavendrick Smith of the Dallas Morning News, a reporter and a native of the Pacific Northwest, on the incredibly interesting, I think, multi layered, complicated murder trial of Amber Geiger in. Dallas. Are you tired of hearing me talk about Tyler Hay and Evergreen Golf Call yet? You better not be, because where would I, Mitch Unfiltered, be without the premier wealth manager in the Northwest, title sponsor of both our March Madness Pool and the Major Championship Challenge, and just an awesome partner? Evergreen Golf Call has developed this Evervestment, a digital investing platform that combines the ease of a robo-advisor with decades of proven investment experience. You can use this online solution and not need to be a millionaire to get the same strategies that all their high-wealth clients get on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't matter whether you're saving for your first vacation home or your first day of retirement. Evervestment can get you on the doorstep. All you have to do is go Go to their website at evervestment.com, E-V-E-R-V-E-S-T-M-E-N-T.com. It'll guide you through the process to start investing for your future today. doesn't matter if you're not a millionaire. You can invest like one anyway. Evervestment from Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. segment i have something up my sleeve that i'll save for the end i've got naming rights it's gonna i I named for you the 60s it's not going to be any of the guys that i named for 60s i have a special naming rights to the show but we'll do that at the end and before we get into our kind of seesaw battle you know i see your your story i raise you this story um no tacos at taco time this is the one setback of having a great quarterback who's in an MVP season. Right. He decided to throw every touchdown pass. Every touchdown that they had on Thursday night was a throw from Russell Wilson. Why couldn't we have had the guy from Green Bay? Was it Aaron Jones? Was that his name? Oh, my God. <laughs> why couldn't we have had him? Well, why are you We'd saying be full you, for a week? You wouldn't go. You still wouldn't go because you still haven't gone on a Tuesday. I, I'm at the and point. Don't, don't even tell me all that right, you went last right. Tuesday because you didn't go last week. I didn't go, but I'm at the point now where I, I don't know if I can go now because I haven't gone at all. Now it feels like a sellout Well, move. people have been asking me. Even Taco Time was asking me, are you still going to go on Tuesday? You don't get any free tacos because Russell Wilson threw them all in mm-hmm. instead of running a couple in or giving the ball to Chris Carson. He threw it bobbling to Chris Carson for oh, the game when he touched the first time. Uh, but uh, the answer is taco time for me is a Tuesday lunch ritual during football season. Tradition. Yeah, if you want to tr- call it a tradition. Okay. I mean, I go by myself. Yeah. I go to different locations. Oh, okay. There's a few that I go to more than not. And I sit with my phone and now my glasses. I have to wear glasses now. And I and I tweet and I <laughs> answer emails and I answer nice things that people say. And I put my third my finger up to the people who don't like the show. Yeah, and I do yeah. all my I book I help book the show. I talk to Steve Dion through text and so forth. And I that's my Tuesday afternoon. Taco time is my two. So whether I got to pay, and I guess I got to pay this week for my tacos or not, 
The answer is I'll be at Taco Time on Tuesday. All right. That's the answer. You don't let anyone know where you go. You just kind of show up or you don't want to be, okay. you know, bombed. What are you, what with- are you doing now? <laughs> what are you doing now? I'm just asking. Do, do you tell people on Twitter where you're going or do you just show up? I'd be happy to. Like, no one's going to show No, You think somebody's going to show well, up? I don't know if anyone's going to show up. I, I think they might. They might come say hello. I will I'm say, not saying you have to do it. I will say this, and this doesn't answer your question, that every Tuesday so far since this promotion started with the free tacos for running game, mm-hmm. no matter which one I went to, somebody came up and said hello. Oh, that's nice. And And – uh, we we had a table for four right across from you. Said thanks for notifying me. I would have never known about this. I listened to your podcast. Oh, Thank great. you for notifying. So they were there, and I said make sure that you don't just eat the free tacos. Yeah. Okay. Get yourself Spend a, a burrito. Yes. Get a burrito, yeah. a, an iced tea, a nice iced tea or those, something. Those soda machines are awesome. Oh yeah. I love the soda machines. You do. It's so cool. They're you controversial. The, why is that? Yeah, I don't know that I want to get into it. Is that right? They're a little controversial for the business owners. The upkeep. Or? The, the, the Max Movie Mogul Max. Yeah. Works at a movie theater that's got four of those things here in, uh, I won't tell that's you That's right, yeah. Yeah, four of those things. And they're always out of service. Oh, interesting. And they're, they're, it takes, it's a lot of upkeep because well, otherwise the orange soda and the Coke start tasting a little bit alike. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> when you have yeah. like, when you have like a hundred different options. Oh, it's probably more do, than that. How, okay. How do they get it? Not to not to bleed into interesting, one. Interesting. It's yeah. a, it's, a, it's an interesting technology. I don't think that was on my list of things to talk about. But the, yeah, I like their ice. Oh, the ice is great. The I like pellets. the taco time. Oh, ice. you can't do okay. better. All right. All right. I like drinking this. You want to you want to start off the 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 other stuff before I get to who I'm naming the show after. I have a silly one I can start off with. It's kind of silly. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I'm, I'm I sit at work and I always have something on to listen to because I, I like to. T- tune people out I work with. So I had on the 1991 Rose Bowl, because I like to hear Keith Jackson's voice in my head. Oh, so great, yeah. Billy Joe, he, I think he'd love saying Billy Joe for some yeah. reason. Billy Joe. The Huskies against the uh, Iowa Hawkeyes. And I'm, trying it was, to, I'm trying to remember that game, okay. Coach Hayden 91. Fry. Oh, yeah, sure. Iowa wasn't, like, stocked with NFL guys. Nobody. Matt Rogers was the quarterback. So they had the guy that you fell in love with. They had Nick Bell. That's right. That's why you wore 43. 43. But yeah. they, I think the quarterback was Matt Rogers, his dad, Jimmy Rogers. That You, you might – basketball, NBA, head no. coach. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Of course. Jimmy, <laughs> I thought you'd get excited about Jimmy well, Rogers. I, I, I didn't yeah. know where you were going with that, but Jimmy yeah. is Jim, Jimmy Rogers. I think it was the fro. That's yeah, yeah. the white-haired fro. Right. So oh, his sure, son was a quarterback. Sure. And then, Jimmy Rogers. <laughs> and Merton Hanks also on the Iowa team. He was You're good. kidding me. <laughs> really? So I'm chicken, watching. What do they call him? Rooster chicken. He had like the he? long neck. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Yes. Yeah, he was on Iowa. Yeah. Really? So I'm watching the game and a commercial comes on. I, yeah. I love when people throw old games on. You get to see the commercials from the '90s, like for new cars. I was like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't drive that now. Yeah, I'm sick. Yeah. One of the commercials that came on was yeah. Christian Okoye and the Chiefs power their way into the Orange Bowl to take on Dan Marino and the high-flying Dolphins. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, the Dolphins used to go to the playoffs all the time in the NFL. I completely forgot about that. It kind of caught me off guard when they said the Dolphins. I don't even think of them as, like, an NFL team anymore. 1991. Do, was, so do you remember is, that? This is the way you- <laughs> Do you remember that year? <laughs> I just it kind of caught me off guard. Like, oh my god, that's probably the last time. Here I was thinking we're talking '91 Rose Bowl. He's gonna come up with something funny. It's gonna be entertaining. This <laughs> yeah. is a really good start to our oh, I think seesaw it's funny. battle. I did come up with and, something and funny. And it, it all ends up with <laughs> taking a dump on yeah. the Miami Dolphins. Really? But they were good at one point. I don't know if you remember that or not. But the Dolphins used to be pretty good. They had a quarterback. Do you want from me to Pittsburgh? come over there and punch <laughs> you in the face? But honestly, I didn't. I didn't know if Dan Marino was still good in '91. I remember him good in like '83. He was still good. Ten years later, or he's eight? one of the greatest quarterbacks right. that ever lived. Uh, Probably the greatest quarterback that ever lived. All right, 
We're not going to get into that, but okay. fair okay. enough. I'll okay. let you have your Believe moment. Believe me, in 91, he was he was good. Okay. He was good. A little surprised. I mean, you're a little surprised. Yeah, that he, he was, was like part a of the, what was he? He was part of the '83, the famous '83 yeah, draft, sure. which would have made him eight years into the league. Do you think that Dan Marino wasn't good eight years into the league? Are you some sort of a knucklehead? Ninth. What's wrong with you? Ninth year. What's maybe, the matter yeah. with you? Yeah, I guess so. It was his eighth, eight years after he got drafted. But, Ninety-one. You're telling but me. But I remember the like '83, '84 Dolphins. They went really to the playoffs. Well. I don't every remember the '91 Dolphins. Oh, I don't know. I don't even know yeah. that I really remember the '91 okay, Dolphins. Right. But believe me, he was good. He was good every year. They, were, they went player, to the playoffs yes. every year. Okay. <laughs> kind of caught me off guard when I saw it. Really? This is where can – I, can I edit this out? I'm editing this out. And Okoye, like my favorite running back too. It was like – Christian, the, the Nigerian nightmare. Like the best promo ever for me. Who was the other chief running back? Barry Word. You're good. What are you yeah, doing? I used to watch sports my whole life. I, you're always surprised that I wow. know sports things. Who was the quarterback of the Chiefs back then? Was it Steve DeBerg? In 91? Yeah, I don't That's even know. Who, who was? Who, uh, I don't even know. Bill Kenny. No, it wasn't. No, Bill it wouldn't Kenny. have been Bill Richard Kenny. Richard Todd. No, Kansas City. Wasn't he a Kansas City guy, Richard Todd? Richard Todd was a well, maybe late in his career. All he right. was a Jet. He was the famous that was the famous play before Marino got there. AJ Douay. Oh my, what a day for Douay. Three, three picks. Three picks yeah. on the because they didn't put the tarp on the field. The Jets are still crying. We didn't put the tarp on. Freeman McNeil couldn't run. <laughs> Intercepted, and then the great Dick Emberg, who became later in later years a, a constant guest on our show. He was so wonderful and one of the great voices. You got to go back and listen. And I, I've actually sent out a tweet on that, on that play. That that's like broadcasting genius. If you listen to his call on that play, if you went to a, like a sportscasting school, if you went to Syracuse's Newhouse School of Communications or Washington State's Murrow, whatever, and you were taking a class on how to be a great television football play-by-play. Go back and listen to how he called that play. It is so beautiful. Now, granted, I love the play. The play was wonderful, and it was my youth, and it was 19, what was it, 1982, 83, and Richard Todd threw a, that was Richard Todd. Oh, I was was thinking of Todd Blackledge on the Chiefs. Oh, Todd Blackledge. Well, Todd Blackledge and and Marino are are connected in one way. Same draft, right? Same draft. Bill, uh, Tony Eason, One of five, one of those five that were drafted ahead of him. He was drafted ahead of Dan Marino. Amazing. Todd Blackledge. Yeah. So, so let's do it really quick. It was Blackledge, uh, Tony Eason. First, you got to promise me that at some point this week, <laughs> you will listen to Dick Enberg, his call of that play, the third interception. Intercepted, A.J. Dewey. And, and, and then he lets the crowd. I mean, it's just it, okay. very few words. Very few words. Oh, my, what a day for Dewey. Just right, lets the okay. play speak for itself. Here. Oh, it's okay. just beautiful. I'm on it. All right, so what did you want to do? Oh, sorry, the five quarterbacks drafted ahead of Marino. I think it was five. I think he was the sixth. Okay. They were. I got Elway. One. Eason. Uh, Todd how, Blackledge. How did you, you get Eason? <laughs> Champagne Tony Eason. Yeah, that's right, for the Patriots. You're going to get them all. Three. Well, now, uh, Jim Kelly? Four. Do, do you know another one, or is that oh, it? Oh, sure. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, uh, his arch Kenny O'Brien. His arch rival. From? Oh, Where did Kenny fuck. O'Brien go to school? That's Work a, on that one, Cal Davis. No idea. Cal Davis. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So is it my turn or is it your turn? Uh, yeah, sorry, it's your turn. I just wanted to dump on the Dolphins. Do you know there. what Penny Hardaway's doing for a living these days since you know so much about sports? Uh, I have no idea. You should know. If you're going to be on Mitch Unfiltered, you need to know what Penny Hardaway's doing. Wasn't he coaching high school basketball? He was, but, but he's not anymore. Okay, I have And no he has idea it then. in two years. Interesting. He's the head coach at his alma mater, Memphis. Did you not know that? No. This is his second year, I believe. Oh, great. Yeah. Do you know why I'm asking you that? I have no idea. He's got the number one recruiting class in America. 
Wow. Better than Duke, better than Kentucky. He's got one of the greatest classes that's ever been signed by any school. He's got the number one player in the class and the number one class, a guy named Weissman. He's going to be the number one freshman. He's going to be, a, if not the number one pick next year as a whatever. And he did something that I, I found very interesting this week. Okay. So he's got all these incredible freshmen. He's probably the most the people in in the college basketball world are more intrigued to see his team than any other story in college basketball when it's when the season starts. So every all eyes because he's got all these freshmen, and they're going to be ranked in the preseason polls. Will be ranked in the top ten or whatever. Okay. He said we're going to win it all. Wow. He said it this week. He said. You can quote me on this. We're winning the national championship. Now, at first you say, oh, that's that's funny. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Penny Hardaway's got – he's. But, but then I started thinking about that. I can't remember the last time, if ever, I maybe ever, I ever remember a college basketball or football coach before a season started predicting that they were going to win, like saying it that definitively – we are going to win the national championship. I don't, I don't know that. And maybe I'm blocking one out that yeah, I can't yeah. remember. I don't remember any coach ever going down that road. And and Penny Hardaway did it. It seems like unnecessary pressure to put on your team. And that's my question. Do you love it or do you hate it? That's what I find interesting. I think I can make a great if like Max has or, or Brett has. They have they have these classes where the debate classes, whatever, yeah. where you you have to. I think I could argue pretty definitively both sides to that, yeah. whether you love it or hate it. I can see both sides, too. There's something that there's something empowering about it, though, right? Yeah, the, you, that you, bravado. If, if, if you, you are, you're, a, you're a 17 or 18-year-old freshman, and, yeah, you're supposed to be good, and you hear your coach say, we're the best. We're not just good. Yeah. We're the best team. We're going to be the best team in America. There's something... There's something that really galvanizes you. No, no, yeah, empowers you. Yeah, yeah, I think. But then on the other, the well, other hand, the other hand, they're 18 and they're young and they haven't played a game yet, and yeah. now you got put all this pressure on them to win the whole thing. And thus, it made my list. There did, you go. Did the, the Fab Five didn't win at all, right? Wasn't that the timeout game? I can't remember when they were freshmen against Duke. So Steve Fisher was the was the coach. Yeah. And uh, no, they did not. They didn't they win, did at win, they they did not win at all. Yeah, yeah, they got to the national championship yeah, game okay. as freshmen. I think they got to the national championship game. Yeah, yeah, but I don't it's, think they won at all. It's a lot of pressure to put on his players. But now, I'm not, but who isn't intrigued to watch now? I can't wait. I want well, to see I, these guys. Well, I think everybody was intrigued before he said that. But I just I, there's something about it that I like because it, there's a genuine part about it that I like. I, I, if it was if he was somebody else, I might not like it. If Calipari said it, or right, I yeah. might not. I might just take it as sleazy, slimy. I don't like Calipari, but there's something innocent about Penny Hardaway. He's only two years into this thing. He's not like some accomplished great coach. Yeah. He's a great player, obviously, but I just there's something about it that I like. Interesting. It yeah, caught like me it. by surprise. Go ahead, you're up. Oh, boy. Russ and Kyler Murray exchanging jerseys. This was a big thing on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it. I don't know if you care. It happens, happens every game. Every game it happens? Every game, somebody from one team is exchanging jerseys with the other. Guy. I don't know why this every one sort of Every single caught, game. This caught fire. I, I, why? People, I saw that it was on your list, and I don't, I don't know why. It, it literally happens every game. I think fans want to think that they hate each other. That's the enemy. Arizona's the enemy. We're not exchanging wardrobe with them, please. Please go down there, beat their ass, and then get home. Well, it brings up a much older conversation that I used to have. Where did I used to have it, Hotshot? 
Um, oh, you had a, a can with a string on it to correct. another can. That's correct. To all the listeners' houses. Do you remember the name, since you always say this to me, do you remember Dan Marino? <laughs> hey, Mitch, do you remember Dan Marino? <laughs> I remember that guy. Do you remember Sean Alexander? <laughs> yeah, I've heard of him, yes. Okay. When Sean Alexander was a star of the Seahawks, do you remember who the quarterback was? Uh, Matt Hasselbeck. Yeah. When they were getting good under Mike Holmgren and getting really, really good, they would lose a game here and there, and I would be tormented. As much as I'm tormented now, maybe even more. And inevitably, and this is not the changing jerseys, this is, but this is the overall conversation that you really want to have, okay. I'll, and I'll have it with you. They would lose a game, and inevitably, the cutaways after the game where the two teams go in the center of the field, Sean Alexander would always be laughing and joking with the other guys. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to take my when – when it was after <laughs> losses – yeah, I wanted to take my fist yeah. and put it through my screen because here I am in my living room, yeah. pissed off, and yet 37, he just got stymied for 46 yards. They lost 24 to seven to somebody, and he's with the gap teeth and he's carrying on, and he's you know the, the scene I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah, and the reason I bring up Hasselbeck, I bring up Hasselbeck for a reason. Now, Matt and I, I used to know Matt a little bit. I don't know him anymore. I mean, I, I haven't spoken to him in forever. But one of the million things I loved, I loved Matt Hasselbeck. Okay. Everything about Matt Hasselbeck. I loved the competitor that he was. I loved the kind of quarterback he was. I loved his story. Wasn't invited to the combine. Yeah. I loved everything about Matt Hasselbeck. Then he'd come on the air. He'd come on our show, and he was a great guest. He got it. Everything about Hasselbeck I loved. I'd see him at California Pizza Kitchen with his family, and he'd yeah. say, I loved Matt Hasselbeck. And here's one of the things I loved about him. After the same game... When they lost and he went out because it's it's courtesy, you got to go out and shake the hand of the other team's quarterback. Quarterbacks have to sure. say hello to the other quarterback and you have to go shake the hand of the other coach, whatever. You'd watch Hasselbeck in that same game after that same 24 to 7 loss in the middle of the field. You could see the few, like, I don't even want to be here. He was like rushing to say hello. You could tell he, he was almost on the verge of tears. He was so pissed. When they lost, yeah. you could see it written all over because that's the way I felt sitting in my right. family room. He was a and then they would and then they would cut away to Sean Alexander and he'd be <laughs> goofing around right, and the right. teeth and the whole thing yeah. and because that was what Sean was, like him or hate him. That's, that's his what personality. Sean, that's right? what what Sean yeah. was. Hasselbeck hated losing and you could see it, and I loved him for that. I learned a lesson a long time ago about uh, pro wrestling when I went to the Tacoma Dome and Adrian Adonis was in a big feud with the Junkyard Dog, and I'm in the well, Tacoma we, Dome. Well, what, what, well you'll, you'll see, you'll see where the, the lesson I learned. Yeah. And I'm, I, I somehow could get a view down the hallway in the back. I went around the back and I could see the locker room, and I see Adrian Adonis sitting in a chair, and the Junkyard Dog walked right by him, and I'm thinking to myself, he's right there, just kick his ass. <laughs> why did? Why is he not attacking him? You hate him. He's right there, and that's when it hit me. It's just a business. It's all a business. Sports, everything. I know wrestling's not the NFL, but it's just a business, right? They, they, well, they don't hate each other. Well, 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 nowadays, I mean, especially nowadays. You watch those those. I almost wish that the TV would not show it. I hate it. Yeah. You know, and then it's. I think it started when they all did the prayer together. Both teams would get uh, do the prayer. And what am I going to do? Like, am I going to argue with that? Right. Uh, how's that going to come across? Yeah, if Mitch right. doesn't like it that they're holding hands doing the prayer yeah. together when they just. Yeah. You know, I just after losses, I'm I'm sideways. Yeah. And I want my my team to be a little bit sideways. Mike Holmgren was fuming after losses. Matt Hasselbeck fuming after losses. Daryl Jackson. Goofy after losses, didn't like it. Uh, Sean Alexander, the worst, the worst. The I don't want to see the gap tooth. I don't want to see the gap between the teeth. Um, all right, am I up? Yep.
I want you to make me feel better on this one. Okay. I saw Lonzo Ball being interviewed the other day on TV. Okay, now that's the dad, right? No, okay. I thought LeVar is the dad. I can't keep it straight, so you help me. Okay, LeVar is the dad. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I may be wrong. Okay. I saw the son, okay. the one that plays for now New Orleans, doesn't yep. play for the Lakers anymore. Um, I saw the son being interviewed, and he said something along the lines of, I'm still not on speaking terms with my dad. And I'm I'm ashamed to tell you that I liked it. <laughs> rooting for that that family to not talk. I don't say I was rooting for. All right. And then I stopped and I was like, how sh- how dare you? Yeah. I mean, the one guy who had the greatest relationship with his fa- with his father. I had the great relationship with my father. That I uh, how how important I believe, you know, sons, daughters, you know, parents, the the relationship between parents and kids, especially the son. The, the father-son relationship, which is so near and dear to my heart. Here I am, like, happy that, <laughs> right. the, that the ball son doesn't speak to the ball father. So I need to lay down on a couch, and you need to make me feel better about feeling that way. Or should I change and just say, it's a shame. There's something about that relationship. Yeah. The, the way he behaved himself all of those years that I had to sit and listen to on TV and on radio – there's something that's kind of satis- satisfaction. I got a little satisfaction for it. What I mean, how, how else could that go, that relationship? I mean, their dad is the most obnoxious human on the planet. How else is that going to go? At some point, you're going to turn on him, and he's going to do but something you don't like. if you, you know. So you don't have to feel badly okay, about Okay, hold it. on. But a naysayer to what you just said would say, he's the most obnoxious guy on the planet, most obnoxious father on the planet. There are a lot of fathers out there doing a lot worse than LeVar Ball ever did. Right? Than caring about his kids and trying to get them famous. There's a lot and, of yeah. fathers that have betrayed their kids sure. and done a lot worse. Left, you know, took off. Yeah. Yeah. You may be looking at one. Yeah. You may be looking at a guy who did worse than LeVar Ball ever did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Is he obnoxious? Yeah. Is he just, does he, do you just want to turn the TV off and change channels as soon as you see his face? Yes. But are there a million, a billion fathers that have been done worse things? Probably too, and yet he's he's more of a goofball, right? He's not mm. he, he's not going to jail, right? He's not killing people, he's is he? Selling sneakers for four hundred dollars. He's not going to jail and murdering All people right. and robbing banks, right? Yeah, and doing could, awful things. But you could diminish anything down to that. Well, people are starving all over the world. There's I worse just things. Love the fact. Yeah, I know. I know. I think Beyonce didn't talk to her dad, or still doesn't talk to her dad really? either, because he was like, he's the one who ran Destiny's Child. He was like uh, so involved with her. So that's how it goes sometimes, you know. You could see it going sideways. Right. By the way, do you remember when he challenged my not Beyonce's dad, but yeah. Lavar challenged Michael Jordan? Yeah. Okay, let's say Michael was into it. I know what is Michael fifty eight or something now? Yeah. And it was pay per view. Would you pay to watch a one on one game? No, I'd rather see the bagel, the bagel boss. <laughs> I have no bagel guy update this week. Sorry. <laughs> this is the bagel guy. Sorry. For, all right. Snoop Dogg. We were talking about college basketball. Oh, yeah. yeah. This it, is your last one, by the way. You get one more. All right. Take uh, Snoop Dogg and put another one on. We got 60P this week. 60P is coming up this week. All right. I just wanted to say um, rest in peace to Rip Taylor. But Rip Taylor died? Rip Taylor passed, yes. I don't know a ton about him. I just know he was funny with the confetti. He was goofy. He goofy, was really funny. goofy. Yeah. And then towards the end of his career, he didn't care. He would just like look exasperated, put his hand on his hair, and pull his wig off. It just made me laugh every time. Like Rest in peace to Rip Taylor. Yes, Rip God. Taylor. But Snoop Dogg is like, like 90% of our audience has no idea who Rip Taylor yeah, is. Yeah, fine. Although Grandma Maggie does. <laughs> Grandma Maggie, for sure. See? 
Yeah, so after uh, everything that's going on with the Kansas program, including uh, what's the what's the expression? Um, I forget what the NCAA, they don't have, uh, what's the NCAA say about Kansas basketball program? The allegations, they don't have control of their program. Yes. To have a midnight, we call it, we used to call it midnight madness. Does everyone know what midnight madness is? I think most people know what midnight, it's the first practice, uh, 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 these illustrious college basketball programs put on a big show for the first practice and they used to do it at midnight because you weren't allowed to practice until a certain day, so they would do it at midnight when the day, when when the clock struck I'm sure small schools do it too, it's just a Uh, a big pep rally for the team. Yeah. yeah, and Kansas, which has been under the under the spotlight for control over their program, God. had Snoop Dogg <laughs> and stripper poles, and they called them acrobats. Yes, acrobatic <laughs> dancers. I love that because <laughs> Snoop Dogg, he's into the acrobat community. I yeah. don't know if you guys do that. And he's Snoop Dogg's is throwing dollar bills, right? Isn't he? Wasn't he firing yeah. dollar bills at the girls? Can I just say how jealous I am of Snoop Dogg? He's a cartoon character who never ages. He never, he was cool in 1991. All right, here we are, uh, 27 years. So what? is Dan Marino. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> 28 years later, college so kids. So is Merton are... Hanks. Co- <laughs> <laughs> the neck. College kids going crazy. Who had a Snoop longer Dark. neck, Merton Hanks or Steve Grogan? Oh, that's a tough one. Who had a longer neck? Merton Hanks had the. Oh, yeah, man, I don't think that long. that was a good choice by Kansas based on what's been going yeah. on around their program. Probably not a good choice by anybody under any circumstances. When you have a, it's, it's college basketball. You probably have a lot of uh, families there to celebrate yeah. the return of Kansas basketball. But especially when they have been under the spot, the intense spotlight of not having control, to have that. Like three days later, not not a good look. And then you paid, you spent money on it. I mean, Snoop Dogg's not coming there for free. What is oh, that, no. Half a million, a million. Did you see what the athletic director his statement? I didn't. Yeah, he didn't know that he uh, something about he requested to the Snoop Dogg people that they do the family friendly version. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what do you think Snoop oh Dogg's reaction to that was when he got a when he got yeah. a memo from the AD right. of Kansas? What we'd like you to to calm it down. What do you think? What do you think his reaction to yeah, that? Do was? your clean act, please. Yeah. All right, that's it. That's all, all right. I got. What do you got? I got one last one Okay, before we name the show. Did you hear there's a new Manning quarterback? Another Manning quarterback. And this, I probably should have done this right after the Penny Hardaway, we're going to win it all. Because this kind of goes into that same direction. Another Manning, as in Peyton Manning? As in Peyton. Do you know that Peyton is one of three boys, right? Cooper. E- okay, Cooper was yeah. the oldest. Eli. And Cooper's somewhat of a sad story. I mean, not too sad. Well, Let's not go overboard. But he was supposedly yeah. the best athlete of the bunch. He was oh, a, I didn't know He was that. not a quarterback. He was the best high school football player. He had the most promise when he went to Mississippi. But he had a condition, like a serv- like a, uh, a neck condition, and he f- was forced to have to never play football again. So he about, never got to chase his dream. What would Thanksgiving be like every year with the three of them and the dad? I mean, Archie was great sitting around. T- great. Archie was <laughs> unbelievable. Right. So those- No, no that no one remembers you got to sit there with those three and hear their war stories about the nfl so so while eli and 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 peyton were off to these incredible careers cooper the older brother never was able to try it because he had this condition this neck condition or spine condition whatever no it's not that sad he just couldn't play football and he went on to a nice career he's a businessman or whatever and he's always handed it beautifully with great grace you know i love my younger brothers i root for them and he's never shown well Life comes full circle. His son is now one of the greatest ninth grade quarterbacks in high school football. Ninth grade? Ninth grade. He's a freshman starter. Oh, geez. And his name, Arch Manning. Is that not, right? not Archie. Arch Manning. That's cool. In Louisiana. And 
He, he's been playing these last couple of weeks, high school football, ninth grader. So he's the nephew of Eli and the nephew of Peyton. And they interviewed Archie, and he had to do it. He had to do it. He shouldn't have done it. He had to do it. Well, I think he's ahead of where Peyton and Eli were oh, at this stage of the God. game. <laughs> he just cursed him. He just cursed him, right? I mean, come now, on. Now, you say oh, you geez. say that Penny Hardaway, when he says we're going to win it all, is putting a lot of pressure on freshmen <laughs> freshmen in college and right. sophomores in college? Yeah. How about Archie Manning, yeah. father of Eli and Peyton, saying, yeah, this ninth grader, he's ahead of where those guys were at this stage of the game. 14 years old. Yeah. 14. <laughs> is that a little pressure? <laughs> wow. Now we got to keep an eye on him, don't we? There you go. So uh, what do we have left? We have to name the show. Got to name the show. Got to name the show. And I said Chuck Bednarik, and I said Bern Brostick, and I said Max Unger at 60, and I told you we're not going to use any of them. Okay. Because you probably you probably have followed a little bit because you're a little bit of a sports fan. A little bit, Not yeah. a lot of a sports fan, but you might have followed over the years uh, the name Braden Bishop. Do you know the name Braden Bishop? That sounds familiar. Yeah. So Braden Bishop went to the University of Washington – as a baseball player, ended up in the Seattle Mariners organization and uh, has, was a terrific minor league player, has had a cup of coffee in the big leagues. Okay. His younger brother, by the way, as an aside, is even a higher prospect. Top, just was drafted in the first round of this last. The younger brother out of Arizona State is going to be a big a – big, okay. hopefully they'll both be big players. Archie Griffin just said he's going to be better than uh, Barry Bonds at some point, yeah. so <laughs> that poor kid's got, the, he's got more pressure. Archie Griffin. <laughs> yeah. You got Archie Griffin. Yeah. I, I hope I didn't say Archie Griffin. I hope I said Archie Manning. <laughs> oh, yeah, Archie Manning, Archie Griffin. I might have said Archie Griffin. So if I said Archie Griffin, I apologize. I'm done. Anyway, yeah. you, you know – you probably Probably know people in the audience probably know what I'm about to say. That Braden Bishop has been ed- energetically raising awareness for Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, because his mother, who just happens to be, this is kind of a, a, a six degrees of separate, nine degrees of separate, whatever the thing is. My brother, my my brother Sander, is married to my sister-in-law. Uh, she, her family is are cousins with this family, the Bishop family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess my brother by marriage is a cousin of 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 the Bishop family, a distant cousin. And uh, his mother, their mother, Braden and Hunter's mother, Susie, battled early onset Alzheimer's for many years. And Braden and Hunter, Braden in particular, really did a wonderful job in sharing her struggles publicly with all of us to try to shed some light on how horrific a disease this is and how we need to do something about it. Well, over the weekend, Susie Bishop died at age 59 years old. And I know that it it touched a lot of people in this community, I'm sure around the baseball world. And so, I don't know. There's no connection to episode 60. But with all due respect to Max Unger and Bern Brostek and Chuck Bidnerick and Otto Graham... Uh, I just I feel like uh, I want to say that um, that this episode I didn't know her at all I didn't know her. I never met her I don't even know Braden very well or I've I've interviewed Braden over the years I don't know Hunter at all but um, I just want to say that this this episode is kind of devoted to the the Bishop family and I wish Braden and Hunter and they set up a, an organization called fourmom.org the number four okay mom.org i i request that anybody in our audience who whether you've been touched by alzheimer's or not whether you know somebody who's been or a family that's been touched by alzheimer's if you like mitch unfiltered if you've gotten a kicked out of this episode or any episode just at some point this week log on to four mom 
the number four mom.org and check out what Braden has been doing with Hunter. All right. And all the best to the, the Bishop family. All right. It's a tough one. I mean, I think most people or a lot of people have, you know, had a family member or at least experienced some of it. It's, it is a brutal and sad disease. It is. Yeah. And when you're losing people at age 59 and the quality of their life from 53 to 59 was terrible. It's a real, real heartbreaking situation. So, if you don't mind, can I do it? I don't mind. I think you should do it. All right. Episode Susie Bishop. Episode Bishop Family. Uh, number six is in the books.